Okay, welcome to the White Oak Collective Podcast. I will be with you, Austin Dudley, today as the host. Bo has left us for the week. Uh, He went on a little turkey trip out of town, so um, we're going to do things a little bit different. But in his place, we've got a couple guests with us, so I think we may actually have some better faces in here than if he was sitting across the table from me. So this week's podcast, we're going to have two individuals from the Mississippi Forestry Commission joining us they're both outreach officers for one's region three one's region four um the states broke down into four regions so this is um meacham that's with us is region three she's kind of around hasburg belt state line to state line and then kevin Kraft is also with us he's region four which is going to be down a little bit closer to the coast kind of boot heel and uh i guess the toe point 20 coastal counties 20 coastal counties so, uh, both both you guys from Mississippi went to college in Mississippi. Y'all both have quite a few years with the uh, with the Forestry Commission. Um, I can let y'all tell just a little bit about your bios. Um, y'all know it a lot better than I will. So, uh, Kevin Meacham, anyone y'all want to kind of introduce yourself? Well, I mean, just to start, me and Meacham both went to college at Jones on uh, Junior College. Started working here eleven years ago. At the very bottom is what we call our Ranger One position. Started off at the very bottom, um, what we call our swamper, or as a ranger position, you just kind of follow around the bulldozer and just help out in the woods and do other various field activities as a ranger. Then I moved up using my degree as a technician in Lamar County, did that for multiple years until we had um, kind of the restructure that you see on today's platform. The restructure, I went to a technician in what they call Area 44, which is Lamar, Pervin, Hancock County, and then two and a half years ago, I took this um, public outreach job, which is mainly going around talking to media presence, um, going and doing Smoky Bear events. We do fairs, any kind of public event to where, where the, the Mississippi Forest Commission is trying to shine a light on what we do. That's, that's what we come out and talk about. Cool. Well, that's what we talked about a little bit of that off air before we got going. I mean, what we're wanting to do with our podcast in general is educate people on stuff that's available to them, uh, resources that are available within the state, or even if you're out of state, resources that you might be able to pick up in the state that you're in. Um, there's always similarities from one place to another. So it's just learning about tools that are out there. That was one of the biggest things we were excited about bringing you guys on for uh, was that educational component. Sounds like we got to the right people for that. Matron, you want to go with with yours? Yes. So I started um, working for the Forestry Commission in 2013, and that was I was right fresh out of school from um, Jones Junior College, the forestry program there, two year program, and I was looking to go to State Mississippi State to do my four year forester's degree, but I was offered the job with the Mississippi Forestry Commission as their Region Four Public Information and Outreach Officer, and I honestly did not know what that consisted of. But I knew I had a job. So I started that job, and that's actually the job that Kevin has now in Region 4 is where I started. And I did that for several years and then moved into the Urban and Community Forestry Program. And I became a certified arborist throughout that, um, throughout those years that I, I worked for the Urban Program. And then recently, in October, I decided to go back to Outreach and Information and I was hired for the Region 3 position that became available. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that about the, the urban program because as we go through this podcast today, 
uh, a lot of my notes are kind of just pulled straight forward from y'all's website. So as I was working through it, I got to looking at, at that program. And I actually had some questions about that. I know we weren't talking about that originally, but uh, kind of toward the end, if we get like a little roundtable time or something like that, I had a few questions about that I was wanting to ask. Um, so I guess like kind of just jumping right into it from here, if there was somebody that was listening that wasn't familiar with the commission or um, what the overall, I guess, umbrella that the that the commission shadows over what is the mississippi forestry commission like what what are you guys what are you doing what's your purview what's what's out there for people well mississippi forest commission we do a lot you look at the protection the management and the information side of it so the protection is we protect over 19.2 million acres of mississippi land i mean that's a lot of fires that we have throughout the state we'll go over some of those numbers i'm sure here in a little while but it's just so much more than fighting wildfires that we do in the state we also do a lot of the management side. We manage 16th section school board land, which is land that's owned by the school board and a lot of the counties here in Mississippi. So we manage that property for them. That's 480,000 acres that we manage for a school board, which means it could be anywhere from painting boundary lines, cruising the timber for the timber sales. You know, all that money goes toward the school boards. We try to generate anywhere between, between 10 to $12 million for a school board throughout the year. So, you know, that's what they use for books, buildings, buses, that kind of stuff to help our school boards out. And for and then, most, if somebody doesn't know what the 16th section of land is, okay. most all counties have every 16th section of land yeah. was designated by ownership for the school well, board, not right? All counties not all it. counties yeah. have it, that's right. Yeah, not all counties have it in the state of Mississippi due to some uh, treaties and stuff in the past. Right. But most of your counties have them. I think it's right around 60, a little bit over 60 counties have them in the state. And what that is, it's school board on land. If you've ever bought a house, the northwest corner, the northeast corner, that's a section, township, and range, Matt, where there's a 16th section on there that is owned by the school boards in a lot of these counties. And they manage that property. It could be pine straw leases. It could be timber sales. It could be, you know, um, a McDonald's. Whatever that school board deems fit to make the most money for that school board, we manage that property for them. Gotcha. Uh, in other words, timber sales. Right. It, it could be anything, boundary lines. We just want to make sure that we – keep up with their property, how we see fit through the timber management side. Perfect. And they're also all certified tree farms. Another important thing to say about the 16th section lands in Mississippi. Okay, they are all certified. They're all certified tree farms, yes. And then our information side is just mainly about just getting the information out to the public, uh, you know, making sure that they're informed about forestry in the state of Mississippi, not just on their, on the 16th section public land, but on private land owners too, you know, 77% 77% of Mississippi is all privately owned. So, I mean, there's a lot of land out there that's privately owned, so we want to make sure that they're informed on timber and stuff that's going, timber and timber escrow going on in the state of Mississippi. So you really are touching from a individual level, some commercial level, and, I mean, municipality level. I mean, it, it's really just all facets of forestry. We try to we try to help with the fire to the 16th section to the, to the private landowner. We're still here for private landowners. We do a lot for private landowners. We'll go over a lot of that here in a little while. But we're still here for private landowners, and we're trying to help them however we can. Perfect. And that's, I guess that's really the the meaning of this podcast, not saying that somebody that's listening to this might not uh, work in one of the other sectors or, you know, be in a, some kind of government role or something like that that might hear it uh, and maybe not as familiar. Maybe they're not in that specific uh, capacity, but – Mostly it's going to be the landowners, and it's going to be what's available to you. I'm a new landowner, or, hey, I just, yeah, 
I just inherited this land. Hey, I just bought some land out the country. I've always lived in town. What's available to me? So that's that's exactly yeah. what we're kind of wanting to hit on with this. And, and, and that's a big thing. A lot, a lot of our landowners, you know, they do know that we're there to help them. They know there, but they don't know what capacity we're there to help them. And that's what we're going to try to help help out today and, you know, give them a little knowledge mm-hmm. on what we can offer. Perfect. Uh, where where y'all want to kind of jump into with that? Y'all want to just kind of start with uh, the different services that are available for landowners? Yeah, that's um, good to us. Yep, just kind of like, so we have... I guess as an overview is there's free services, there's paid for services, there's grant applications, there's several different facets y'all can help a landowner here. That's right. So we have um, free services, and some of those free services include um, providing force management advice for timber production for the landowner, um, along with inspections for damaging insects and diseases, such as southern pine beetle, and invasive species detection and then monitoring uh, best management practices, which involves water quality. Um, And then we also assist urban homeowners with specific tree care assistance provided by our certified arborist, which we have several that work within the Mississippi Forestry Commission. And some of our paid services that we offer that cost um, are establishing and maintaining fire breaks, and we do some light dozier work. We also can work on the maintenance of logging roads, skid trails, loading deck maintenance, and then prescription prescribed burning. That's a big one. And southern pine beetle suppression. If you've already, if you have the southern pine beetle, then we can help with marking the infested infested area and coordinating a harvest operation. Yeah, and what so, that boils down to, like when you talk about the landowner business, well, let's say if the landowner has a dead tree out in the yard or in their pine stand, and they think it could be the southern pine beetle or they don't know they just know that they have a dead tree well our area foresters can come out and look at that free of charge on the free services we can come out and look at that tree and tell you if you have a southern pine beetle infestation or if it's just a lightning struck tree or if you think well do i really need to cut do i really need to get a consultant forester right now or do i need to wait a few years well as a as a area forester, he's a registered forester. He's going to help you with that. Now, we can't give you a price value for your timber since we're a tax-paid entity, but we can definitely help you out and point you in the right direction in your timber management. And so the way that it's set up is, we talked about that just a second ago, so the, the state's broken down to four regions, and then within each region, it looks like there's like one to seven areas. I think uh, I think when I looked at it earlier, like region one, two, and four all had six areas, and region three had seven areas. And so it's like a little couple county yeah, the, compact almost that that forester is going to be responsible for. Yeah, the, our, our normal area forester is anywhere over from two to four counties, depending on which area they're working. And then the regions are set up basically about 20 counties per region on average. And there's going to be, like you said, six to seven areas per region. But that area forester is going to be over anywhere from six to 11 employees. And they're going to have anywhere from two to four counties that they're over. So when you're calling these people for the landowner visits, you're calling our foresters for the landowner visits, just make sure that, you know, you give them a little bit of time to get back with you. He might be on a prescribed burn burning uh, your neighbor's property. He might be on a wildfire helping out. Or he could be in the in the woods cruising timber for the 16th sex school board. So that being said, they, they, they cover a big area, and they do a lot of work in those counties. Gotcha. Okay. I didn't realize that there was that big of a, I guess, staff 
level at each area breakdown, yeah. if that's the right way to say that. Yeah, and all, it all depends on workload. It yeah. all depends on the, the fire capacity on the wildland fire side of it. Um, it. It depends on a lot on how many employees are in each area, and it, it does differ a little bit. So so that does matter in that, that statement. But okay. each, each region has a regional forester and then two assistant regional foresters, and then that breaks down into our area foresters, which are six or seven, and um, and then underneath them are forest technicians and then forest rangers. Okay, and that um, it, it's kind of like our organizational chart. They, like she said, there are four regional foresters in the areas or in each region that are pretty much the boss of the region. Okay, so maybe like diving into some of some of those type services, like uh, the forest management plans. Like somebody, you can have somebody they come out, they can cruise timber, they can kind of write you a, I guess a. A, a report of like this is different age group. Maybe if I'm skipping forward from kind of how you want to, that's fine. Uh, we can back up, but I just was kind of choosing, I guess, to start with that one. But um, they can come in and just build you a full picture of what the health of your forest is and how to move forward. Yeah, well, mainly what uh, something we offer is our tree farm stuff. Okay, that that tree farm would it's it's really going to help you out in the future with your trees. Certified wood is is becoming a bigger thing in mississippi today that a lot of your meals a lot of your operations they do want certified wood that's going to go back in reforestation so you can get on our tree farm and that helps out with your management plans your long-term goals of your forest so the tree farm is going to be a big thing to help out the management plans we'll come out like i said look at your timber as far as management plans we were write a management plan that is for the fee okay that's for the fee and that's also ties into our forest stewardship plan and so the whole part of the forest stewardship plan is giving the, the landowner the tools and information basically to be a good steward of the land. And that involves writing a forest management plan for that landowner and um, using their specific um, landowner objectives for that management plan. And then using that as like a roadmap to the control of herb, um, invasive species, to timber production, to... Um, Water quality, recreation, I mean, it can, whatever your objective is, whatever your main objective is, is where you concentrate on your plan. But it just it keeps you in line with what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, and to help keep your land productive and healthy for okay. years to come. So, like, you would come out, meet with the landowner, find out what their long-term objective was with it. So, like, what are we trying to do? Like, I'm interested in these particular goals. And then you're... Every landowner is different. Like you might want to manage your property more for your turkey population or somebody else, landowner B, might want to manage for, you know, a retirement fund or kids' college education, you know, with the timber. Yeah. Every landowner has an, a different goal. So our, our area foresters come out and look at that. They're going to say, all right, what's your goal? What do you want to accomplish? If you want to be a uh, have primetime turkey habitat – what they might end up doing is setting you up on a on a closer burn program to where you can get a little bit cleaner woods. If you want to do a, you know, manage for timber, then you might want to get on a little different rotation than what you would mm. the average turkey hunt or something like that. So it all depends on, like you said, every landowner is going to be different. So our air foresters are reading into your goals on what you want to accomplish, and we're going to try to help you accomplish your goals that way. So you'd fall anywhere on the scale of like, maximum recreational value to maximum timber production and then you could oh, just yeah. kind of lay it out 
where on that scale you wanted to fall. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, every landowner is different. We have some people that, you know, they want to make some money off their timber, but they don't like seeing the big clear cuts. They want right. to see more of a managed property to where it's more of a rotational cut or they're not cutting all their property at one time. They're cutting little or, or smaller chunks of property. So, you know, we add that into our, our what the landowner's wanting. Gotcha. Perfect. Um, something else about this forest stewardship program that's good is, is it's pretty much setting you up for future generations. You know, it's not just about seeing – you know, our generation go, we want to mm-hmm. see this forest stewardship program help set up future generations, your kids' kids with these pine stands and hardwood stands. So that's what our forest stewardship program is about. It's about setting up for future generations also. Well, in the programs, and so I guess for people following, we, the free-for-service are like questions, just what best practice type questions, insect or invasive inspection just come out here that you got a problem you don't have a problem it's just kind of from that level and then once we get into the actual service side that's coming out performing a service on your land and that would kind of start from the plans and then move on into some of the other things we're about to talk about but uh looking at the program so there's two programs it looks like the forest stewardship program and then the forest resource development program is that right yes so the um frdp which is the um forest resource development program that is a cost share assistance program for landowners, and basically it's a reforestation program. Okay. It It's going to um, give assistance for tree planting and forest improvement practices to um, achieve long-term timber production and enhance wildlife development. So you have to have at least 10 acres to qualify, and... Each landowner can receive up to $10,000 per year. And through this program, $2 million per year is um, distributed statewide to landowners. I was going to say, I thought I was looking, I was playing with the numbers earlier. It looked like it was an average of about 2.3 since the, like the program started in like 75, I think was the first year of the payouts. Well, That's right. It's been 103,000 and some change, I think, distributed over that 46 years. So, um, and the thing about this reforestation program, our FRDP program, is we really want to do sustainable forestry. We want to see trees get plant, planted back. We want to see, you know, a renewable resource happen. Um, so that, that's, what it's, that's what it's really trying to promote is, hey, we know you did a clear cut. You just got, got the finance off your trees. Let's help you out in replanting. Let's help you out in, you know, maybe doing a burn for a site prep or some chemical application to really help you out to mm-hmm. get these trees started up and going good again. And that's anywhere pine, hardwood. There, there's multiple options there for for what you can go with with that. I get maybe other people are similar to me, maybe they're not. That that was one of the reasons I was interested in getting here and asking questions, with y'all, because like to me, when I think forestry service, being from the east side of the state, I'm like pines, pines, pines. Uh, so like to me, my experience with dealing with any of the county foresters all has all been pine driven. So whenever I got in and started digging into this and looking at like. Uh, the, some of the hardwood restoration and some of the like chemical preps and all that stuff. I, was, I thought it was interesting what all else was actually involved in that program that that had call share applications. The uh, now the F uh, the the forest resource development program that like that was a state run program and then the stewardship program is a federal run program through USDA. That's correct. So the forest resource de- development program is um, our foresters are the ones that run that program. Okay. So you would sign up through them by calling your local MFC office and they would be coming out to do the work. Perfect. And then the stewardship program is it's it's basically a 
Yeah, I would say a federally, um, federal operated program. It's done from that level. That's right. Yeah, like, exactly. I think, I think it was like administered to the USDA. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the tree farm program is a national program also. So what about the tree farm program a little bit? Like if somebody, since you mentioned it earlier with the, uh, just with the management plans, how does that, like, can you define what exactly that is and how it gets started? Like, so, yes, the tree farm certification, it's a certification program, first off, and it's basically giving, all right, it's starting you off with the management plan, and then once you have that, then you can fill out your, your tree farm application through your forester, uh, and they have to, you have to have an inspector that's certified for the tree farm program to um, look at your timber, look at your property, and make sure you have everything checked off the list that's that's needed, and then they will certify your your property okay. as a tree farm, and you get a nice sign, um, and then you also get the certification for your wood that's on your property, and so in the future, if, say, the mills will only take certified wood, then that will benefit landowners in okay. that sense. So and, does this start over with every crop of trees that's on it like if they have like if they come out and sort of like if you look at that rotation from seedland to, to harvest is that tree farm kind of like start over every time or is it so it kind of starts all right so each plan lasts 10 years okay okay and it changes you don't want it to stay the same so every time you do a new practice a new practice or a new um say timber sale or if you do anything on your property, whether it's a herbicide um, treatment for invasive species, you will update that plan. Okay. Yeah. So the up, the updating would be, say, if you were to cut a pine stand and then replant it, you know, that would be put into your management plan. Gotcha. So it, it just basically keeps track of your the process of what you're doing throughout the time that you have that property and I was trying to think of an analogy for that. It's kind of like the Kelly Blue Book know, of, yeah. your, uh, of your of your timber sale. Like it, well, yeah. you wouldn't drive to California right now without having directions, correct? Right. Same thing a management plan is. You really want to have a direction in which way that you want to go. It's a roadmap. As a landowner, you want to, again, like, a, like you said, a roadmap. You want to make sure that you have a plan set out. And with the tree farm, you're going to have a management plan. You're going to have all this stuff set out. So they're going to know, okay, he's going to, or they're going to cut somewhere in the next three years. You know, once they get, you know, the logger lined out and all that, they'll cut in the next. So, you know, it's not something you're not just going to surprise. Oh, it's cut now. Right. I mean, you're kind of going to know what the plan is and all that. And the good thing about this tree farm, like I said, it's about that certified wood because a lot of these mills, they want certified wood. They want to make sure they're just going back in the reforestation, that they're not just cutting everything down and just letting it grow back up. So the, that certified wood is really going to help out. Gotcha. Trying to think where where to go now. There's so there's so many ways that you can run into this from uh from different different options. But um, if you go into uh, the F the FRDP program is the one that helps with the cost share and the replanning. Mm-hmm. So like I guess if if we follow through the steps of if I got a new place and it's all clear cut, or if I just harvested my timber and I'm trying to figure out what to do from there, you get into this program or you apply for this program. Look like. Was it run June to Ju- July to June or something like that? I think it's kind of the yeah. app or the the, the year in that period, fiscal year in that fiscal year period That's for right. it. And so you would need to get applied. You sign up for it, and then once the money's gone, it's, it's gone. First come, right. first serve. That's now right. there's 
I guess within that, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily in that program, but I think it's kind of maybe under the same act. There's also some reforestation tax credits, too, that are available. So, like I said, I know there's a couple different ways you can attack attack that. Re- if we start there, maybe that's the way to start as we talk about this, is start from a seedling and work up. Yeah, so the reforestation tax credit is um, basically it provides a Mississippi income tax credit up to 50% of the cost of approved hardwood and pine reforestation practices uh it it started not too i don't know how long ago exactly it started but the mississippi forestry association had had something to do with that tax credit yes mississippi was actually the first state to establish a reforestation tax credit and mississippi forestry association and its partners worked with the state legislator to increase the tax credits lifetime limit to seventy five thousand dollars gotcha and then, so just kind of of the of the programs that are available, we hit the resource development program, we hit the stewardship program, kind of touched a little bit there on the reforestation tax credit, uh, the legacy program. That looks like there's one other. That's I guess the fourth kind of program that's out there available. Yeah. So uh, you got the forest legacy program, which yeah. is a special program that the forest legacy program is a USDA uh, forest service program and a partnership with the Mississippi. Uh, that will help support the local efforts to protect environmentally sensitive, privately owned forest lands threatened by conventional to non-forest use throughout the land. And this was uh, special special use areas yeah, or special yeah. require like like I know like the northeast kind of up in the prairie environmentally area. sensitive yeah. areas yeah. is what that okay. So that's that's involves. not for everybody. No. That's something that you have to live in a in a designated that's area right. that, yeah. that needs the. Uh, which it looked like kind of northeast corner, yeah, south southeast corner down around the boot hill, and then maybe some area around Jackson or something like that. That's right. So. And these areas are are really um, they're special because they're they're keeping other things from being put on that land to take away from that environment, and so it's protecting like it. Basically, encroachment from right. residential or commercial. I mean, it areas. could be threatened species on that property. Yeah. You know, water waterways or and special water quality, you know, special areas. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, and, if, and if you look at our website, you can look see at the Mississippi Forest Legacy Program. There's a map of them, and it has you'll see a lot of them down in the marshy that southeastern area. That you know, there's a lot of marsh bogs, a lot of pitcher plant bogs down there that they're trying to protect. So that's that's what a lot of that program is down there too. So I, I, that that kind of I guess leads to just like a, a general question I had thinking about this, and I was trying to figure out how I was going to work this in earlier. But so, what do you think of like when you mentioned those like pitcher plant bogs, and we talked a little bit about like some of the the prairie areas and all kind of up, up in the northeast corner? Like the Forestry Commission, we're looking at things other than just timbered forest, correct? I mean, we're looking at swampland, prairie land. Like it doesn't is is it just timbered forest, or is it just like kind of the wildlands of Mississippi in general. I mean, we try to protect Mississippi as a whole. Okay. I mean, with I mean, you got we're the 19.2 million acres we protect. That's that's all of Mississippi. It's if you have a fire up in the Delta, well, these employees in the Delta, they know the critical areas that they want to stay out of. If it's a 16th section that's in that pitcher plant bog, well, we might not want to go in there and clear cut that timber. We might just want to do it right. more of a of an environmentally friendly 
way of doing things. We don't – so it's, it's really missing. I, I, I was trying to think of how to phrase that question earlier, and I, and I still don't know that I, I came up with the best way to put it. You answered it. I don't know that if I stumbled around into getting it out the right way. But yeah. that's what I was like. You know, when you, when you think about all the different, I guess, landscape types in Mississippi, like does, does it all fall under you? Well, Mississippi has the most diverse kind of terrain that you'll see. You have the coastal counties that are just flat, marshy, you know, a lot of your high fire danger statewide, really. But you have your marsh areas down there. And then when you go to the southwestern part of the state, you get your hilly around Natchez. It's just – it's completely different. You have your gully washers and all that. And then you have the delta, which is a whole nother, you know, Animal region. Itself, yeah. And then when you go, you know, middle plains, you have your hilly – your middle of the state, you have your hilly rolling hills. And then once you get back into that north northeast, you get back into the – Kind of more mountainy, hilly. So it's just it's it's a whole top topographical area that just it's just really a big diverse topographical area. Yeah, well, that's that's what I was I was trying to figure out how to how to put all that into a question. But uh, I'm glad you covered that because I was trying to uh, I, I couldn't I was having trouble working that out myself. Um, like a what, lot of our firefighters, you know, in each different region, they fight fires totally different because of that geographical difference in each area so it is interesting to see the difference well what um as we went through kind of those services and all like did we miss something y'all wanted to cover there did we kind of breeze through something you want to go back to and well we could talk about our forest health program yeah i'll say always back me up or or don't be afraid to to stop it and let's let's cover anything you want to cover like that because um as i'm moving through I i don't want to miss anything so our forest health program it provides technical assistance and special incentive programs for the control of invasive plants, um, such as Kogan grass, which is one of the top 10 invasive species in the world. And we have it in Mississippi, and it's spreading. So we we really want to get a hold on this Kogan grass. We're not going to get rid of it necessarily, and we're not having – we don't have these programs to get rid of it. We just want to start the control process. And basically the education process for landowners, identifying it, letting they know that they have it, they know what it is, um, and then they know how to control it. So we, we have these incentive and call share programs that they can sign up for, and we will come out to their property and spray their coke and grass for free. And, and for somebody that's wondering, like, what this is we're talking about, uh, there's obviously there, there's a whole information section there on uh, the Forestry Commission's website, yeah. Uh, it's kind of a, I mean, you describe it kind of as a bunch grass that yeah. grows in a circular. You, you kind of, to me, it always stands out because you can usually see big circular patches of it. That's right. It's, it's 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 like you said, it's a bunch grass, one root ball, pretty much that grows in a circular pattern. Could go anywhere from one to four foot to five foot tall, depending on the type of soil that it's in. And it is a completely different grass. It came over in packaging material, and it is a. Real rough grass to the touch. It's not going to be like your your normal grass, just to where it's real slick and you can slide your hand down. It. It's going to be a little rough. It's going to kind of feel a little sawtoothy or a little briary, so to speak. Like you're not just going to be able to rub your hand down it and it not you not feel it. It has an offset vein and it is a completely different beast, so to speak, to control. It is just it, it's like she said. It's one of the most top ten invasive species in the world. It burns. If a fire does get in there, it burns extremely hot. 
it's just the types of oil and, mm-hmm. and con- conduciveness of it. it. It burns extremely hot. So it's something that, you know, you really want to control. Plus, it's not something you want on your property. You know, if you have a big pine stand, let's say you have a 100-acre pine stand, you have 10 or 12 acres of coking grass, which would be a big patch of coking grass, and you have it in there. Well, when you go back, as long as the trees are growing there, it is taking a little bit of nutrients from the trees. But all in all, your pine trees will be fine with it up, with it up under there. But then whenever you go to cut down your trees and you go back to the reforestation mode that we've been talking about so much, when you go back into that, that's where it's going to be real hard to get those pine tree, whether it's loblolly, longleaf, whatever pine tree, even your oak tree product mm-hmm. that you want to, to sprout back up from that or to, you know, to get out of that grass, it's going to be real hard when you got four foot of grass sitting there that's choking that pine tree. It's just out competing it in that it's, area. It's just out competing. And then you're talking about the nutrients because, you know, baby pine trees or baby oak trees or any kind of baby plant needs a little bit more nutrients than, than normal. So it's, it's going to be competing for that in a big way. So does it, I'm guessing it, seed transfer, I'm guessing, is what, what moves it along. So you see it a lot of times. The, the white fluffy bloom that you see when it when it does bloom is, that is the seed, the okay. seeds. And it blows in the wind, birds transport it, mowers transport it. I mean, there's just so many different ways that it's transported throughout the area. And then once it starts growing, it grows from kind of like a central area and it just keeps growing out. It has a serious ribosome root system and that's where it's yeah, growing yeah, from. and, and okay. a lot of people think oh with your seed pile well, think about it if you are going out turkey hunting that day and you drive through a patch of cogan grass during why it's seeding out which would be kind of in the, in the late to mid-spring mm-hmm. whenever it does bud out and you drive your truck across and go and check in your food plots and you go over to your other property well you just spread that cogan grass from one property to the other if you're bush hogging during the wrong time of year while that white seed pods on there are if it's not on there i mean it could spread through the root system yeah. too so that it's different spreading other than just wind driven spreading okay that you yeah. got to watch out for so if you have it that's why we want to really push if you have it our air forester will come out and look and just see if you have it that, yeah. that's one of our services we'll come out just look at your property if you do have it he'll let you know and that's something you might want to start watching out for is driving through it or being around it in a way that could potentially spread it and that's a is that a multi year treatment? I think I read somewhere on that to get to get it knocked out. It, it is, yeah. yeah. What you want to spray is uh, you can't spray glyphosate product on it or say your Roundup or that. But yeah. the Magifier based chemicals work pretty pretty well on it. Uh, they, they they do well on it. Now whatever your mixture is, you just you want to talk to your local local area forester and he'll maybe help you out with that. But that's mainly what you want to spray on some Magifier base. Or you can do a mixture of the chemical. If you spray a Magifier base on it, what it's going to do is it's going to it's going to take a little bit to brown up or let you see that you've that you've quote unquote it's working. But that right. glyphosate's going to turn it brown a little quicker, so that's going to help you out there on seeing what you spray. Gotcha. And there's all kind of dyes that you can buy through your forestry supplier, um, where you can see the area that you sprayed. You don't want to really. I mean, it's not like your normal grassy chemical to where you just want to put the most chemical in the bucket you can get and spray it on there. You want to spray a certain percentage on this Kogon grass because it's, it's a tough grass to get rid of. And if you spray it to what I call hot, mm-hmm. you know, use my yeah, terminology right. there. I, I, do this. I use yeah, the same yeah. terminology. Yeah, if you spray it too hot, what it's going to do is it's going to shut itself off the root system. It's going to come back the next year. Gotcha. So you want to spray whatever it says on that bottle for Kogon grass to make sure that you're not – Wasting chemicals, so right. to speak. Yeah, well, I was going to say, for most people, if you're not familiar, if, if you are familiar with doing spraying, like if you just read on that label, I think pretty much all all the ones in those two families, mm-hmm. they have a site on, or they have a 
a section there for, for cooking grass. Yeah, and, and that's something, I mean, you know, you, you pay $350 for a bottle of chemical. The last thing you want to do is double up waste, the mixture yeah. and waste it not do anything, you know. So you want to make sure that you're protecting yourself there. But if landowners are interested in signing up for this um, free herbicide treatment, they need to they can go to get in contact with their local forester or go on our website and you can fill out an application. And they're actually getting started with that treatment and getting out to landowners right now. Is this program is actually starting for this year right now? Okay. And then they'll be in contact with the landowner when they're ready to come spray. And we also have contractors that work with us on this program. And so they'll come out and spray. You can Another good thing to do is to actually mark your coke and grass spots on your property. That's right. helpful. Yeah. So when they come out, they'll know where to spray. And it, it would... I mean, every, every, everybody that has any property or, that I know, a lot of them are using this Onyx now. Mm-hmm. Onyx, I mean, I'm not going to plug Onyx on, on here, but definitely it's a it's a useful tool or other tools like it. You can go out there and just walk around your property mapping it and right. say, hey, look, I got this piece of property you can send to your area forester. He, and all every one of our area foresters are real familiar with Onyx and other mapping systems. Yeah, also, I think I think several of those different mapping systems have, like, tracking functions and stuff. You can go out there and do exactly what you're talking about. It's you can, so easy now to go map and say, well, I think this is cogan grass and spray it, you know, if you're – Certain is coking grass, spray it, and then the next year go back out and look at it and see, well, it's, it's got a little bit smaller. Let's spray it again. Well, it's got a little bit smaller. And then, well, I don't see any, but I'm going to spray it one more time just to make sure. That kind of deals. Right. At Onyx is such a good product, and like I said, all our air foresters use that, so you can send them a um, Drop them a pen. Send them your own little map of it. And there's no area too small or too big. Okay. One acre of coking yeah. grass or 20 acres of coking grass. You know, this is a program for everybody. Gotcha. Okay. Do um, you want to kind of stay in the invasives while we're there, or do you have something else you want to cover back with the uh... – Invasives, I think we can talk more about that. Okay. Um, so just kind of looking through, look, there was treatment programs for both the Congress and Kudzu, that, like another one that had a, had a treatment program with it? There is a yeah. Kudzu treatment program, and – I just noticed on the website it was like a had a similar form to kind of the Kogan grass one. And there is, and I'm not sure exactly what they use to treat okay. the co- the kudzu, but I know it is a a problem on a lot of people's property, including my own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, and then you can go online on our website and fill out that application. Okay, that's they're kind of right. If, if somebody's interested in that, they have that. They're you, really pushing the Kogan grass, the kudzu. We haven't really heard much about okay. that one, okay? But right. it's out there, I believe. Okay, yeah. I'll, well, well, we won't go down. We won't beat that that one too bad. Um, it looked like so. What invasives in Mississippi? Like, what are, what are the main things you're trying to control here? Like, I know uh, cone grass, kudzu, something. People are, I guess, cone grass, kind of the the new one. It almost seems like you're hearing a lot more about. Uh, Kudzu's been around for a while. Everybody has grown up with that. It seems like. Uh, Tallow tree, popcorn tree, it seems like a new one that's kind of out there, too, that's kind of getting pushed. Help stop the pop. <laughs> yeah, and, what, and when we're in the mapping stage of that. If you look on our website, there's a, a interactive map that you can go and, and identify the Chinese tallow tree to make sure that we're just trying to get a general area. But we know that the Kogan grass is bad. You can drive down uh, any interstates or highways down south, and you can really see that it's, it's, it's a bad 
bad for the cogan grass, mm-hmm. and it's such an invasive species. But definitely the Chinese trailer tree, we're on. We're, we're in the mapping stage of trying to figure that out. On We know and, it's a problem. We just need to know how bad of a problem. Right. And the popcorn tree is one of the worst invasive plants in Mississippi. It spreads like wildfire, and it overtakes native vegetation, uh, damages wildlife habitat, destroys basically just nature's balance in general. And like Kevin was saying, we have a Mississippi invasive species tracking app, which is not just for the Chinese tallow tree. It's also for other invasive species. And on that app, it also gives landowners um, control how to to cut down a – your popcorn tree or how to treat it but we as an agency are not able to come to a private landowner's property and cut down their popcorn tree okay we haven't gotten to that yet we hope to get there one day okay but as of now it's just a a mapping in the mapping stage to see what we have and we know we have a lot okay and and one of the things to give the um, landowners, you know, advice on how they can treat it. Okay. But we do offer the municipalities a herbicide um, program where they can sign up for, fill out a very simple application, and then we will bring them herbicide okay. and teach them how to do the hack and squirt method. And that way they can control their infestation for their cities. So we do offer that for the cities. Yeah, and that hack and squirt method, that's something, you know, we, you, we have videos on our website about it. That's something that, if you do have any kind of invasive species or just, you know, undesired trees that you want on your property, the hack and squirt works really good, the hack and squirt method. Um, well, that was it, something I was wanting to ask about later, but since I brought it up, so there, you said there's some, like, there's some instructional videos on the website. You had to do that. Um, I know a lot of people, it's hard to get recommendations on, like, mixtures and stuff like that, read product labels, that kind of thing. Is some of that information on there is kind of, like, what it's, what it's chemical families that you want to use to, for that? Yeah, it's mainly talking about the method on how to do it. Okay. A lot of this on the bottle. Yeah. If you're going to be yeah. using a glyphosate chemical on the bottle, pretty much everything or every species that that glyphosate will injure, kill, or hurt, it's going to be on that bottle. Right. Uh, if it's not on that bottle, I would suggest finding a different type of chemical. Right. Um, we just tell a lot of people to go by the recommendations on the bottle. Um. And that, that's the big thing. If you're doing a hack and squirt method, you're pretty much going to be spraying a lot of chemical in there. You're going to fill it up. And it's just, I don't think you can get it extremely too hot on the hack and squirt method. Okay. It's not going to, you're trying to get inside of that tree cambrium is what you're trying to do. Right. And most of the places that you can buy that chemical from are going to be able to give you some kind of recommendation toward what, uh, to me, it seems like, it, like if you're getting it from the co-op or something like that and you tell them, hey, I'm trying to treat sweet gum, I'm trying to sw- treat, what a popcorn, whatever whatever thing you're trying to go through and, and treat, they're going to be able to give you some kind of recommendation, I feel like, or at least a chemical family to get started with. MSU Extension Service has yeah. okay. a lot of really good advice on that, on the herbicide choices. Um, also on our Help Stop the Pop Invasive Species tracking app, it tells you different treating methods for those popcorn trees. And I believe it actually talks about the herbicide choice of what chemical to use uh, I, I know it doesn't go into measurements or anything like that of course you're going to get that off of the the actual chemical bottle okay. but i think yeah. it does tell you what to look for like what ingredients you need to treat these popcorn trees so gotcha. what tell me kind of what that tree looks like i don't know i've, I've been looking at uh 
It's a some, pretty some fall. It has here. pretty fall colors. Okay. <laughs> it's a really good is, shade tree. Is this one of the uh, kind of like the big white ball flowers? It's kind of a like heart shaped leaf. Heart shaped leaf. Um, and then it has the little popcorn that looks like popcorn. Okay. Those are the seeds okay. that are in little clusters when it's blooming, and you know it can get. We've seen some huge popcorn trees, but then you see a lot of little saplings just sticking up out of the ground, especially right now. They've all just leafed out, but. It does have, right now it's green, then it'll turn orange and red and all the fall colors. And the bark is kind of, hmm, kind of like a sweet gum bark, maybe okay. sort of, kind of. Yeah, something that I'll say about that is you have um, an app on your phone that's going to be really good. This a, a new app out that's the Mississippi Tree Book. You know, Everybody's seen the big books back on that we used to hand out and still have some, but the we have an app now for that. So you can just, on your Apple phone or Android product, you can just look up your Mississippi tree books, and that right there really help you on identifying trees like the popcorn tree and other trees in the future. I was telling her that the other day whenever uh, whenever we were on the phone that as I was stumbling around the website, when I saw the app, I got super excited because uh, – I brought I, you a book today. Well, appreciate that. <laughs> My, so a friend of mine I used to work with, uh, her husband uh, was is a forester in Philadelphia, and – he brought me a book years ago, and so I've had that thing, and he used to ride around my truck with me, and uh, I ended, it ended up spilling water all over. We had a roof leak, and it dripped all over. So, like, I had to get there, and, like, I was trying to dissect the pages apart. So whenever I saw that app, I was like, oh, it's all the same information. Yeah, we've had a lot of people that don't – that is not technologically friendly, or they just – they like having the book. I love the book. Yeah, I you love know, it. They, you know, some it's people a great are, book. Our readers really like to have that book, and they, they really want to keep that book, and they, they cherish that thing. If you may, try to take their book, they're going to – got I, Yeah, I got one. I was I was really excited whenever he gave it. Because we got to talking one day about, like – I don't know. So I asked him one day, I was like, man, how do you find out more about, like, the native trees from Mississippi or the native plants? And he's like, we have a book. I said, wait, do what? He's like, yeah, we have a book. I'll bring you one. There's a couple in the office. So uh, that's how I got my first one. It's a great resource. And the app's really good for on the go. Right. You know, just to look at something real quick. So they you both know, come in handy. You know what they say? There's an app for that. There's an app for that. There's well, y'all have a. Nowadays. Well, and y'all, I'm glad y'all touched on the Invasive Species app. I think y'all launched that about a year ago or something like that. I think I remember seeing a tweet, I think, whenever y'all put it out there. That's right. And uh, I actually think I have it downloaded on my phone. And so the goal with the Invasive Species app, I'm assuming, is to kind of crowdsource through landowners, let's yeah. identify some of these invasive species. We talked about it with the popcorn tree, but you mentioned, like, it's more than that. Like, what, 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 What's your ask, I guess, of us as consumers? Like, what – what would you like us to do? Like, is that a you'd like everybody downloading that thing? Is it more of a forester type deal? Like, what's what's the goal with this? Well, we would love for everybody to download it and map their invasive species in the state of Mississippi. Because if we don't know, you know, I can't go on your property, right? Even as a forester or uh, a ranger as a technician, unless you know you have a fire owner, do you give me permission to go on your property? So I don't know if you have invasive species or not. I mean, I can look at an aerial photo and try to guess, but we really need to know where the problems are, how bad the problems are, because that helps us get the grant funding and other programs that helps out in the future. So we would like to have everybody download the app and, and map their invasive species. Okay. Which we know it's a big problem, like Chinese tallow tree. We've got a ton of those. And then Kogan grass is continuing to grow and move throughout the state. So knowing the the percentage of what we have and how much we have of it can help us with the funding to help these landowners 
to control it. You also have the Japanese um, privet. You've got the I feel like I fight Japanese climbing farm. Everything's from Jap- Japanese, I think, in Japan. <laughs> um, and then the calorie pear, the Bradford pear. People love that tree, but it's horrible. It is absolutely horrible. I got some I need to get rid of at my house. I got one that... It is an invasive species. I, sure. I got one that I would love to have it gone, but it's like, it's a little bit of a blocker. Like, us and our neighbors, like, we all get along great, but it's like, just enough of a blocker that's right there that's like, man, how do I replace this tree? Like, yeah. But we need to get, we, we talk about it all the time, but we got, we got to get rid of that When it tree. starts losing yeah, its like limbs we, we and it becomes an eyesore, you might can get yeah, rid of it like easier. We get rid of it. <laughs> I mean, we talk about the invasive and everything. You talk about the, the popcorn tree, Chinese tallow tree, you look at it. Uh, have you ever walked through a stand that's just ate up with it or infested with it? You look upon it, there's nothing growing right. over there. Well, that's not good for your turkeys. That's not good for your deer. That's not going to be good for anything, really. It's just pretty much a wasteland up under there because of all the limbs and leaves and stuff that fall down that have a chemical in it that's going to kill everything up under it. Well, that's not good for any of your wildlife habitat. I mean, even squirrels don't like them in there because there's nothing for them to eat on the ground. I mean, you right. know, squirrels love the acorns, so they, that's one of the big things. Is it's not good for your forest or your Mississippi native trees, your native wildlife, your native vegetation. So that that's the big thing about the invasives. They're not supposed to be here. Yes, they're pretty to look at. You talk about your, your pears and your popcorn trees. They're pretty to look at, but they... They can be very invasive. I had a lady um, talk to me one time years and years and years ago about the Kogan grass, about the pretty white flowers on that grass. It is pretty, but it when they when you get it, it's, it's yeah. not good. So. They used to sell it at nurseries without realizing what, really? how bad it was. Okay. Yeah. I think the Bradford pear, Calgary pears, finally, uh, looks like a couple states now have gone on and, and outlawed Thank everything goodness. about them, and it seems like that's starting to spread a little bit. You hope so. Um. As you the you're talking about like like privet yeah if you get off in a big hardwood stand or any any stand of trees you're going through and you find like a a big overgrown privet so you're right there's not it's about bare dirt under it I mean it's almost like they block all they block everything from hitting the ground and it's just like bare dirt under there. I mean, the only good thing about it is I say it's pretty easy to walk through. Yeah, it makes it. It's, it's not your average right. pine briar stand, but it's yeah. it, it's not. It, it, if you look at the the benefits compared to the cost of it it's, it's not it's definitely not good to be able to walk through something if it's that bare right yeah. wisteria is one that's standing out right now you can ride around that's easy to spot right now all the purple purple vine flowers hanging that seems yeah. to be hard to get rid of if you're trying to get rid of yeah. it um and they it, grow so fast invasive species that's why a lot of people like them because they grow fast um but that's the bad thing about it is they do grow fast and it just takes over too quick well, that's what I, problem. kind of going through the list of them. I think I'm familiar. With that. I think the only one I wasn't really that familiar with was that uh, climbing firm, the Japanese climbing firm. I don't know that that's one I really uh, have ran into. Fortunately, I guess that's kind of a, a new one that's been brought. It's not new, but it's it's being brought to more on um, more attention. It's given. It's been given more attention to here lately. Okay, and it's there if you look for it. It's definitely there, but it it can really take over. As it's a vine, first off, and it can take over a whole pine stand. Okay. Yeah, and it's just not good. It's not good. So, ask for everybody is check out the Invasive Species app. Kind of start helping help them map that out just to give you all an idea of, of acreage that's affected. Um, some of these have actual treatment programs, but I'd imagine most all of them have uh, at least some insight from your area oh, yeah. foresters. They can come in and tell you what you got. If 
And that's the thing is like we talked about the diversity of Mississippi, how diverse the habitat is. Your area foresters, they live in that area. They live in the counties you live in. They're going to know exactly which invasive species. Like we talk about the Japanese climbing fern or the kudzu or the – they're going to be familiar with that area, you know, really, really big. So when they get to that area, they're going to know more about that than the person. Right. If you call somebody from South Mississippi and you're from North Mississippi, they're going to know more about that area. Okay. So you can tell them go down John Brown Road and they're going to know the road pr- yeah. pretty much. Well, uh, I think – I'll, I don't know that I had really much else on the invasive species side unless y'all did. Um, the only other – whenever – the whole thing that got this this together uh, started with burning, and I promise we're going to get to burning here in a minute, but uh, there's just so much other stuff to cover before we got to the burning. I had – the only thing I had left, it goes back to something you mentioned earlier, Beecham, was the on the urban and community forestry thing. I, uh, I thought it was pretty neat. I was clicking through there and saw that uh, – looked like I did a fair amount – of work with the Mississippi Main Street program. And that just kind of stood out to me because being in my normal line of work, we deal with Mississippi Main Street some. and yeah. um, So I thought that was kind of neat seeing, like, the full plan that was out there for uh, for cities, municipalities to go in there and, like. Isn't that nice? Uh, oh, it's really neat yeah. the way it's laid out. And it, there's so much stuff on there that's, like, instructional and uh, what trees to break down. and It's very um, very good guide. I really liked looking at that book. Um, recently when it came out. But, yeah, urban and community forestry um, in Mississippi, our program has really grown in the past few years. We have a great uh, urban coordinator that's running the program, and she is very dedicated to her job. And then we have um, some partnership coordinators, <coughs> which was myself at, not too long ago, but now we've got a, a fellow, um, Alex in Grenada, that's recently hired from Georgia, and then the Southern Partnership Coordinator job is still not – there's nobody there yet. For, we got to hire somebody for that job. Okay. So that's still open. But um, basically we're working with the municipalities and the Main Street um, people through different grant grants that we have, which involve, gosh, tree inventories, um, tree ordinances, and – Basically, just helping a community with establishing a community forest, basically, and the yeah. community forest, forestry program, and helping them do that. We have these grants and grant assistance for them to start on that path, okay. and that all kind of falls into Tree City USA, which are these are Arbor Day Foundation programs, which we and we um, administer for the Arbor Day Foundation, and. That's also consists of Tree Healthcare USA, Tree Campus USA, Tree Line USA, and I believe right now we have twenty two tree cities in the state of Mississippi. I might yeah, I think it was twenty two. Right? Yeah, I think there's there was twenty two. Yep, okay. that's right. And so that's grown over the past few years. But if you're interested in becoming a tree city, give yeah, us a call. Get in touch with Misty um, with our urban. Forestry coordinator, and she will lead you in the right direction. I was going to mess with y'all a little bit on that. I was going, I can't get back to it right now. I'm having some internet difficulties, but uh, I was laughing. I was kind of going through all the trees that were available. Uh, I don't have all Mississippi trees on there. We got got a few that uh, were those are, Arbor are Day non, events, non, non-natives in there on Arbor Day events. Yeah, the tree sales. Yeah, we are not responsible for all of that. <laughs> I'll say I was thinking we're, about. We're just listing the actual yeah. tree sales. Yeah, yeah. 
I'll tell you this about the urban forestry. It's, it's really not – I mean, it, it's a it's a big thing. It's only going to get bigger. Uh, healthy trees, healthy lives. I mean, people really do – They you know, when you drive through the town of Meridian or the town of Laurel or the town of Hattiesburg, what, what better to see your nice trees growing there and mm-hmm. beautiful trees growing there? That's one of the big things that's really going to be – it's not going anywhere. Everybody wants to have nice cities, nice municipalities, and it just helps with that. Again, like I said, healthy trees, healthy lives. If you have a nice park with a lot of trees, the, the air is going to be a little better. Yep. Hi, and here's a cool thing. So, like, if you go to their website on the tree plot, there, there's a tree plotter inventory. And um, when I was going to it earlier, like, I zoomed in on Meridian. That's where we are right now. I zoomed in on Meridian. And so, like, if you walk around downtown a lot and, I, you know, look at the different trees that are down here. But say you were walking around you found a tree. You're like, oh, I wonder what this is. Like, if you go to their tree plotter map, you can look at an aerial map of the city, uh, and it'll show you um, like what all trees they have plotted out, what they are, what kind of health they're in, what kind of maintenance they need. Like it, it's really cool, um, and everybody has access to that, which is yeah, really it's just neat. right there on the website. And I was trying to pull it up for you. Tree guys plotter is amazing. It does so much. It can tell you so much about your trees in your community. So usually I'm on your end of the table. And my office is right behind you, so I can pick up my Wi-Fi. But I'm just far enough that if y'all keep seeing me cut out, I'm just far enough away from my wall that <laughs> that's why we keep cutting out here. But, um, yeah, I hate I can't pull that up right now with the two of y'all. But, like, I thought that was so cool whenever I was ever just, like, go to Meridian and look. And it was just, like, all the trees had been planted and what they what they were, where they were located and all that. So that, that was, I don't know, that was, like, a little just a little extra thing I found this morning. Last minute I was going through that I thought was cool was – uh, just another thing that was kind of fun to go in there and play with. Like you can see what one tree's worth. You yep. Know, how much carbon it lets out. Yep. All kind of stuff. While, okay. while, while we're on the programs and everything, some other programs I'd like to mention is okay, a yeah. Firewise program. Okay. Uh, a Firewise program pretty much is, it helps the landowner become more Firewise. If you live in the rural area next to a p- big pine stand, well, you might not want to have pine straw built up on your roof. You might not want to use all the pine straw in your flower beds. Might not want to have a bunch of trees right up next to your house. It just helps with uh, the person becoming firewise. Okay. Um, and our firewise coordinator is Mr. Orlando Everly. Uh, he his numbers on our website. He can help you with uh, any information there. Our other thing is our hazard mitigation grants, and that is a hazard mitigation. As you know, we have fuel buildup and stuff. That fuel load reduction. Fuel load. Yeah, it's it's a fuel reduction thing. It just helps out with some of your. Um, burning some of your prescribed burns so that grant helps out there and that's area specific on how many houses you have in a general area a lot of it if you live close to any federal land that helps you out so you can look at that on our website too but that's just two that i really wanted to 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 throw out there before we move on i wanted to make sure we hit on those okay well not that uh what we have just covered with all the trees and those programs aren't fun but i said now we're going to get to the the fun application Um, part about talking about some of the uh some of the burn programs and what y'all got going on on that side? All right, well, let's go through the prescribed burn first. Um, well, okay, yeah. So I think that's a good way to get started. Actually, I have a story for you. So she scared the mess out of me the other day. So, we, yeah, you did. Really? So we, uh, I've, so we got this, I guess, leading to where we are today. I took the prescribed burn manager course, um, I guess, in February a year ago with Alan Stroud. He, he, he was teaching it, and so – He's who I reached out to, kind of eventually got me hooked up with you guys. And so, uh, been on several prescribed burns with uh, some forester friends. I helped Bo uh, do one earlier in the year. And so, uh, 
couple Saturdays ago was the first one that I wrote the burn plan for. You know, call it in, get my burn number and all that. So we do the burn on Saturday. It's like 235 acres. We're burning off some old CRP stuff and uh, everything went great. Like we started, I think, about nine o'clock. We got done about 1.45. Everything was perfect. We mopped up. Everything was nice and clean and we were good to go. Well, like Monday morning, I'm sitting down in my office about 10 o'clock. I get a phone call and I look over and it's like, Mississippi Forestry Commission's on the on the telephone, so I pick it up and it's like, uh, hey, this is Meacham with Mississippi Forestry Commission. I'm like, oh crap, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. She was just calling to get in touch with me about setting this date up, and I was like, it was the de- two days after we that did the. That's so funny. But as soon as you call, I was like, what did I do? What happened? I was like, this is the first one I've called in. What happened? <laughs> that is funny. I bet you were relieved when you figured out. I was out. very, yeah, I was very relieved. When you first called, like, you had your work voice on, this speech on with Mystery Forestry Commission. I'm looking for Austin Dudley, and I'm like, oh, God, what'd I do? Well, at least, at least you answered. That's yeah, it. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, you know, we, we do play a big role in prescribed burning throughout the state. Um, on average, we try to burn around 30,000 acres for our private and our public landowners at the Mississippi Forest Commission. And like we went over earlier, to reduce that fuel load, you know, good fires prevent bad fires. If you have an area that hasn't been burned in 10, 12, or even 15 years, and a fire does get in there, what it's going to do is it's going to burn hotter, faster, and longer. And the problem with that is is you have your wildlife habitat that's in there, pine trees. If you have a tree, even a long-leaf pine tree, and you burn a hot enough fire, that you could potentially hurt them trees, if not catastrophically hurt them trees. So that's what these fires do with prescribed burning. That's the whole reason for prescribed burning. You know, fire's a natural thing here in the state of Mississippi. Before we came along, a lot of the state burned periodically every three to five years. So that being said, it's not a. It's really a very useful tool, and we don't want people to look at it as a, oh, it's the worst thing in the world, fire's bad, fire's bad, fire's mm-hmm. bad, because fire is a useful tool if done properly. And that's what a lot of these courses that you talked about, you took with Alan Stroud, the prescribed burn short course and all that, it, it teaches people how to really do it in a safe manner and how to go about it without being scared of it, so to speak. Well, and it seems like, too, like you, you just take off across this side of the state and you're riding around like what we think about as being uh, our forest lands is not what it looked like whenever all that was happening. Like whenever we had natural fires that were overlapping and, and they were – burning each other like one would burn one another out or you'd run into an old burn or something like that like now we have really like these condensed stacked fuel loads of because really when you're riding on the road like you're looking at crops i mean you don't think when you're out to the delta you think oh, i'm looking at the window i'm looking at crops when you're out through these side of the state and you're looking at all these pine plantations that's you're the, not most people aren't thinking like oh i'm actually looking at a crop i mean it, it's rode up pine plantations um different age groups um but you have different stack fuel loads in there if nothing's ever ever been done to them. Yeah, even on DeSoto National Forest, you know, they're trying to get back to the pine, pine, savanna, savanna, pine yeah. savanna atmosphere. But you look at, like you said, you drive anywhere down the road, you're, it's a crop that you're looking at. You, it's, it's not untouched by humans. It's not right. going to be. And I could just imagine riding down the road, you know, hundreds of years ago and just seeing the pine savannas and all that. That would have been beautiful to see. And, the fire was a big part of that. I mean, right. that's, that, that's what scape pretty much helped scape our landscape was the, the fire. So it's not a bad thing. So what, uh, if you're trying to get into this, like, you know, who landowners in Mississippi have a, have a right to burn, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, now with that, with that being said, 
Um, obviously, there's some experience that we'll kind of, I guess, get into as to oh, who, yeah. who should be burning, when should they be burning, and all that. But, like, um, if we kind of start there, like, um, who like the burn manager course. So uh, yeah. we, we took well, that. Like, so the burn manager, like, who's that for if you're DIY and you want to take it or if you're, like, you know, obviously – like when I took it, there's a handful of us that were like me that were in there. Most everybody else was actually in yeah. the forest industry. Well, like, what if I want fire on the ground on my place? What are my thoughts getting started? I mean, obviously, it's probably going to be bringing somebody in to begin with. If you get some familiarity, you may want to take the some of the well, the prescribed burn stuff. So like, anybody will want to burn for agriculture or forestry purposes really need to take the prescribed burn short course because the prescribed burn act of 1992 is liability protection. Well, you got to have four things to be under that liability protection. You got to have at least one prescribed burn manager on site. So that right there is where you would have your prescribed burn short course. You would get that certificate, and then you'll be that prescribed burn manager on site and do the burn plans and stuff. Well, that's the second thing you got to have is a notarized burn plan. So to be under that liability act or prescribed burn right. act of 1992, you got to have a smoke permit or a burn permit. That's another thing, and it's got to be in the best public's interest. And not a nuisance. So, in other words, it's got to be for a reason. If you're burning a pine stand, you're doing it for a reason. So, But the prescribed burn, it all starts with this prescribed burn short course. That's the big thing. They teach you about these prescribed burn act of 1992 and they, you know, some firing techniques. Mm-hmm. We now have went to a one-day and a three-day course. Okay. A one-day or a three-day course, whichever one you choose. Uh, if you do the one-day, there's some prerequisites you have to take online. Mm-hmm. If you do the three-day, you take it all there, just show up and, and come take it. And, you know, the good thing about this is you hear war stories. You hear roundtable discussions. It's not just go to a class, sit there, study, write stuff down. It's, it's, it's really good knowledge coming from not just Alan Stroud and his training officers, but really just, you know, even people in the, in the, the crowd, so to speak, right, uh, right. in the class of – they have stories about what? their granddaddy burning it jumped the property line one time, or you know, I I, I seen this fire. It, it's it's always something to help out. So. Well, and I'll say like, so I did the one day course. It had the prerequisite training. You know, it, it was a lot of wildfire um, information on the on those educational videos, whatever, on the beginning part. Um, but yeah, when you leave there, you don't leave there just ready to go set the world upon it. You leave there like with you know, like there, there is like you will have a very solid respect for it whenever you leave there on like, I just don't want to get like, what am I responsible for? What am I doing? I have like, it it really makes you uh, more aware probably, which is one of the good parts of going to taking it is it gives you much better awareness about what can go wrong and how it goes wrong. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's hard to talk about prescribed burn without talking about fighting fire because if you set enough fire on the ground in a controlled manner, eventually you're going to fight fire. It could be, well, I didn't want to light that spot just yet, or you know, it's getting a little too hot for me. Let me put in this flanking fire, which is a different mm-hmm. firing technique. There's eventually, if you put enough fire on the ground, you, you know, you're going to fight fire eventually in yep. some way, shape, or form. But having those four um, liability protection points right there, that's going to keep you. If something was to happen when you go to court, that's going to keep you from being negligent. Yep. Um, if you don't have all four, and I mean all four, then you will be considered negligent and the judge and the jury will automatically say that. Yeah, like you, are guil- yeah. you are guilty if you don't do those four things. Yeah, those the, are the minimums. The purpose of that was to make it to where you had to prove negligence right. if 
Right, but if yeah, you don't have those four out. things, you can't that's prove it. Automatic. automatic. Yeah. Number yeah. one, you're, if you it's don't a, have those four things, you're proven negligent right there on the spot. So, right. I mean, there's no way to fight that. So that helps to have that. And it, and this course is so easy to get signed up for. I mean, you just go to our website. Um, we have a search bar up at the top. You just search prescribed burn short course. Everything you need to know pops up. You can register online for the one day or the or the the three days. So that really does. I mean, it's it's, it's super easy to get signed up for it. Now these classes fill up quick. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hoping to add in some more and stuff like that. But definitely they fill up quick. But it, it's something really good to have. I think. Uh, don't be. Don't. I guess. Be afraid to go sign up if you don't. Like, I I kept trying to figure out somebody to sign up with me. Never could get anybody. Like, don't be intimidated by it because you'll know somebody when you get in there. They're they're great people. It's a fun course. You don't have to know anybody in there. You're gonna get in there. You're gonna listen to their stories. Uh, and it's Mississippi. When you get in there, and start talking to them. Like me and three of the, uh, me and Alan and another. I can't remember who the other one was. But, you know, you get in there and you start talking. All of a sudden, you, everybody knows somebody that that's a shared uh, thing. So yeah, this. This ain't like taking your taking your test at the DMV or right. something like that. It's definitely a it's real laid back. It's, it's, a, it's laid, laid back, back kind it, of time. You get to have a, a good lunch. You know, it's 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 like minded people talking about prescribed fire, wildfire, and other forestry practices in the state. Or so it, it's it's really good. Like you said, it's just I mean, yeah. Don't be intimidated. It's it's, it's 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 a great group of people to go in there and and spend the day with. Um, what any so. You go, you take the class. So, so step one is becoming a, a burn manager. If if you're going to do this yourself without, because obviously the, I guess the easier option, but would be require some, I guess, cash expenditures to bring somebody else in. But if you're wanting to do it yourself, step one, you got to be a burn manager. Mm-hmm. Either got to be a burn manager, or you got to have a burn manager. Yep. One of the two. Yep. That, that that's another thing, and and the burn manager. That's that like you said. That is step one straight out the gate. If you're looking to burn your property for agriculture. Or forestry practices, that's that's step number one. Okay. That's where I would start off with. Okay. Step two is preparing a uh, burn plan. Get your burn plan done. Now, again, your burn plan has to do with everything that you'll learn during your prescribed burn short course. It has to be notarized one day prior mm-hmm. to your burn, or it could be a, month, day, prior, yeah. a month prior, just at least one day prior. And that, I mean, it talks about wind direction. You know, if your burn plan is set up to burn on a north wind, and your weather that day is burning out of a south wind, well, you're not in compliance with your burn plan. So it is step guidelines pretty much to what you want to do to burn. If it says you need three people to burn and you only have two, you're not within compliance. Now, you can have five or six. Mm -hmm. So you just want to make sure that you are staying within your burn plan, and that's pretty much trigger points. You know, this is – I don't want to burn – I want to burn on a 5 to 10 mile an hour wind. I'm not going to burn on a 15 mile an hour wind. If you go out there and you light a fire with your burn plan being 5 to 10, and it's a 15 mile an hour wind, but you really wasn't in compliance with your burn plan. So you want to make sure that you check your weather and stuff and stay within compliance of your burn plan. But your burn plan is notarized saying that you pretty much had a plan. Uh, that's what it's set up for is I had a plan to burn. This was my plan to burn, and I was in compliance with my plan. And this is going—it's going to lay everything out from where the property is, what the weather conditions are, what the fuel types are, fuel loads. Yep. Um, and it, and it's pretty much cut and dry. You learn a lot of this during a prescribed burn short course, but a lot of it is, you know, fuel types, topography, and that—that's just you know where you're at, what you were burning that day, what condition did you want to have to burn it in, and what did I need there? I mean, mm-hmm. if you put on your burn plan, I need a bulldozer and a water tanker 
it needs to be there that day of that burn. Right. But if you say, well, I, you know, four-wheeler, four-wheeler spray rig would handle my fire due to the fire lanes. We'll go over fire lanes, I'm sure, in a little mm-hmm. while. But that, um, you know, you just want to make sure you stay in compliance with that burn plan. And the, the whole objective of it is to plan it out, have everything available for you to where it, it's written down, everybody that's involved knows what's going on. It's not yeah. just, hey, it's Sunday afternoon, let's go light woods on fire. Yeah, like it, it just it's to require you to have some forward-thinking steps to make sure you lay everything out for you do something that jeopardizes folks like you and have y'all have to come out, stop what you're doing, stop your life, have to come out there and deal with it. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's like you said, it's all about preparing. It's all about knowing what to do. If you have two of your buddies helping you, well, you can show them that burn plan and say, look, this is what the conditions are going to be. This is what we're going to burn under. If it goes above this, we're going to shut down this burn. Another thing is just try to keep it small mm-hmm. If you're until you get a little more comfortable with it. You know, you don't want to go out – your first burn, I'm sure you didn't whenever you did your first right. burn on a, on a burn plant. You don't want to go do 400 acres. Right. You wanted to do a little smaller blocks, get a little more comfortable with it because fire is something that is, I mean, it's a learned tool. It's not something, and it's something that can get out of control extremely quick if you allow it to. Mm-hmm. So. And it and his behavior changes throughout the day. Like as you get started, as you progress through the day, like it, it's a constant changing. It creates its own situations. Like yeah, it's, and, that, and that's a lot when you take on um, some of the prerequisite classes online for the one day or you take it, you, you learn about different fire weather, different fire. You know, fire is going to burn faster uphill than it does downhill. That's stuff that you're going to learn, and that's stuff that's really going to help you with this burn plan because if you have a really hilly terrain, you might want to be accounting for that. Or if you live in one of the six coastal counties, you might want to think about that sea breeze coming in during the middle of the day that's going to switch around. So that kind of stuff, it's all Eric and Deuce too, and that's where the, you know, that, that, the classes and the prescribed burn will really help you out. Yeah, to me, I remember a guy asking the question in our class. So like For people listening that, that haven't watched or whatever, so like when you take the, uh, I guess, the prereq courses online, they're all like coming from the perspective of fighting wildfires. Mm-hmm. And so it's like going through and telling you like, you know, these are bad conditions for a wildfire and like, you don't want this condition. You don't want that condition. This causes this problem. And uh, so finally we get about midway through the day's class. Somebody raised their hand. They're like, um, it sounds like the stuff we took yesterday compared to today is the like same stuff. And they're like, yeah, well, if your wildfire burns, your prescribed fire will burn. But then in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, well, if I don't do this right, my prescribed fire can turn into that. Well, we got a little saying, a good day for you to burn is a good day for us to fight fire. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's it, it goes in into the same pocket. If it's if it's a 20% humidity day and 15 mile winds, that might not be a day that you want to set a prescribed fire, but we're going to be having wildfires. Same thing with a 50% humidity and a 10 mile an hour wind, which is, you know, pretty decent fire weather. You're going to, we're going to have wildfires and we're going to have prescribed burns. Right. Well, that was, it was just kind of funny. Like, cause that kind of like the real, it kind of hit the whole class at the same time. Like, yeah, all that stuff that made that one work is what makes this one work. Yeah. It's just, it's just doing it in a more controlled manner. That's, that, that's what it is with your firing technique. So where you want to, uh, all right, so, what, so what part of that, how, how do you want to take it kind of through that? What all you want to discuss there? I know you had. All right, well, we got our, so far we're doing a prescribed burn now. We have our prescribed have our burn short course certificate. Yep. You got it. You got your burn plan. Now you got to have a permit, right? Right. So what you do is you go and you dial one eight three three mfc fire. You get your burn permit or your smoke permit. And what that does is on your burn plan, you just write your number if it's, um, Burn number four, you write it on there, and now you're set to burn. And it's going to be under certain parameters. 
that you have. Um, this is, again, the Prescribed Burn Act of 1992. You got to have it to be under that act. And it's stuff that um, it's not permission to burn. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. It's just saying that the the minimum weathers are met to burn that day due to atmospheric conditions. Uh, and it's a uh, transport wind. And I know you know a little bit about this, and we'll get into that. It's the uh, transport wind of 500 meters and a mixing height. Mixing height of 500 meters yeah, or three, three and a half meters per second on the transport wind. Or three, oh, three miles per hour. With a higher mixing height of 890. 890. That's right. What what about those two things? So like I, I know we it, talked about it, it in the class, just, but just like when people hear us talk about transport wind or mixing height, mixing smoke height, dispersion. It's more smoke dispersion. It's yep. kind of how high that ceiling is before it starts yep. getting and, mixed and up. What it is, you really don't want your smoke to lay. And again, this is stuff. A lot of stuff you learn in a prescribed burn soil course because if your smoke is laying, if it's a high foggy, if it the fog's laying, your smoke's going to lay, and then it's going to cause road conditions. Um, you know. Bad road conditions, bad smoke conditions, you're going to smoke in your neighbors. It's not going to get up and out of the area like it's supposed to do. If you've seen the big fires on the soda or any big mm-hmm. prescribed burns, how it's got that big column rising yep. up, well, that was a good a good weather day to burn because it's, it's getting up and getting out of the atmosphere or dispersing in the atmosphere, sorry. Up and out. That's always good. Yep. Well, the thing about it is you don't want it to lay over them roads, especially if you have any, any areas that are close than – you want to make sure that your your smoke's getting out of there. You don't want your smoke lingering around any more time than it's got to, which is again goes back to the keep it small if you have to. If you do have areas that are a little more critical than others, you keep it small. You'll learn about that in a prescribed burn short course again, but you keep it small, you'll be able to burn a little bit more. It might take you a little longer, a few more days, but it's a little safer bet Right on smoke dispersion. Right. Because really, I mean, if you light a fire in the state of Mississippi – you're not only responsible for that fire, you're responsible for that smoke, too. Yeah, smoke's yours. As yeah, long if, you, as it, if you go in and you smoke in I-59 and there's a 20-car pileup, that's your problem. So that's why the big thing is I'm not worried about when I do a prescribed burn. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm not worried about it, but the fire does not scare me almost as bad as, I mean, the smoke's what really I'm worried about on a prescribed burn to make sure that smoke's doing what I want it to, get out of the way, get up and out like Meacham mm-hmm. said. We want to make sure that we're not lingering that smoke around so. I'm more worried about the smoke now than the fire, even though I'm worried about the fire too. Right. That smoke so, can even get trapped in like um, drains. Yeah, following the drainages right. down and here. And then come the out, you know, and it cause bad accidents. Chicken houses. Oh, yeah. Was, oh. That, that was a uh, one of that just uh, as y'all are talking, things are just kind of popping up of like that's, things that's that. The, that the, took, and I know a little bit about chicken houses because I grew up in a, on a chicken farm my whole time growing up. Where I was at, and it, it, it runs off a funnel system pretty much. It goes, the cool cells are in the back, smoke goes in, and it don't leave until it comes out of the front. Right. Or, sorry, in and out. So the thing about it is, is this going to be a long time. If you do smoke in a chicken house or you get a big smoke plume that settles over a chicken house, that the chickens are going, there's going to be a lot of smoke in there. Everybody knows when chickens get nervous, they go to one side of the house, pile up, and they ended up suffocating each mm-hmm. other. So that's the big thing with the chicken houses. You want to make sure that you, if you see them on a map, make sure that you know where they're at, you document them, put it in your burn plan that you do not want to burn on that kind of wind if they're so far from you. And that's a big concern with me every time I burn is a chicken house. So that is a big thing, and especially in this area. There's a lot of chicken mm-hmm. houses in this area uh, that you want to look. So That's number one red flag to look for for me. Yeah, so what we're talking about here is like as you go through these burn plans or as you're writing your burn plan, there's sensitive and critical areas. Mm-hmm. And depending on what 
firing type or or fuel fuel you're burning, it's going to affect what distance you have for sensitive areas or critical areas. And like the chicken houses are one of the things we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, what all is like chicken houses, schools. numbered highways, schools, nursing churches, homes. nursing homes, oh, hospitals. Yeah. Um, it's, and, and these are just areas that you do not want to put smoke on. Major roadways. Yeah, and and, and that's the thing is this it, like you said, it's critical. Critical is a, a no go if you can't sensitive as well. I'm 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 gonna make sure that my my smoke's getting up and out. I want to make sure that I'm so far away from it. And again, if you have something to your east, will burn with the wind going to your west. It's one of those things. Makes you know. There's other plans that you can do. You don't have to have a set north, south, east, west burn plan. You can have different. Everything to the east looks good. Burn to the mm-hmm. east. I mean, it, it your smoke column is going to disperse in a certain way, and you got to make sure that you're putting that smoke not over those critical areas. That's the big thing. If you got to change up your plan, change up your plan. Yeah, critical areas are no go. Sensitive areas, you need to document them. You need to be aware of what's going on. You got to make sure that it's getting up and out of there. If it's downrange far enough, in your or change your direction or your firing technique to shorten it up or, or move it around right yeah, and that's that's why i was talking about to keep it yep. simple may have to do five acres at a time but that, that's going to shorten up your critical shorten up your sensitive areas on the range that you have to burn and, and i'll say this not every piece of property is burnable right i mean if it's right in the middle of 49 59 and you get or you got 100 houses and you're in the middle of a neighborhood i might not want to burn that piece of property mm-hmm. not every piece of property is something that needs to be burned. If it's a major nuisance to a neighborhood and there's nowhere to make it to where your smoke is going away from that, that might be a, a area that you might want to look at other practices of, than burning. But So this, I guess, is a good cut-in point for it, but we, we could have talked about it earlier. Like, If you're in a situation like that from a, maybe not from a wildlife perspective, but from like a timber management perspective, would those be areas that you're looking at, like herbicide treatments for? Yeah, you can do herbicide treatments. You can do your mulching, um, that, that kind of stuff, herbicide and bush hogging. That, yeah. That's one thing you can do. There, there's multiple different applications. Again, that's going to be a little more cost, but but you, if you light a fire in it and you smoke in a neighborhood or somebody has a wreck, that's going to be cost effective too. Yeah, right. So you, you got to look at the long-term goals of what you're wanting. Okay. Okay, back to uh, – I know I kind of interjected there and threw us off, but I, I had that question earlier, and I, I never got around to working it back in. Um, so not not all properties may be, may be burnable. I mean, like I said, you can go through every aspect, and there's if plan A don't work for your burn plan, and you're like, well, that ain't going to work, go to plan B, go to plan C. Find a plan that you think and you're comfortable with, mm-hmm. and it is not a light switch or a trigger for you. And like, okay, I'm comfortable with this. I'm going to stick to this plan. I'm going to wait on this weather, and I'm going to burn on the weather that – that is on my burn plan, and that's the one I'm going to use. So it's just about – that's what the whole burn plan's for. Again, like we said earlier, it just make sure that it's it's something you're comfortable with, everybody there is comfortable with, and then you can burn on that specific win. It's just the plan. Yep. And, you know, like to me when I sat down and did these, like I just – I printed them out, printed out a bunch of them everywhere that I was interested in doing. I sat down and wrote all the plans, got them notarized at one time, and just stuck them in a folder. And then that way – you have them all sitting there ready to draw from. If yeah. if the opportunity presents itself, you already you're not worried about. Well, I didn't go get it notarized. You just got it all done yeah, on the front the way, end. The way most people do them, if they have three or four places, just like you're talking about, they'll set up tabs with an. Okay, I'm gonna burn this one on the north wind, this one on the west mm-hmm. wind, this one on the northeast wind. Right. And you just put them in the tabs, and then when you wake up on a Saturday and like, man, it looks like a good day to burn. You check your weather. Okay, it's it's a good day to burn. I can get a burn permit today. 
you just pull that folder out and you got it ready to burn. If your property's ready to burn, let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Which I think we might have jumped a gun on the getting it ready before you, you know, actually get your permit and everything. But all right. So we got the burn manager. We got the uh, burn plan. We got the uh, burn permit. That's kind of the three steps we've been through already. The the you want to go on and talk about getting it ready to burn, kind of since we're in the the middle of that part before yeah. we get to the. Again, it's the, the the big thing about getting it ready to burn is just make sure you have everything you need. If you need a four wheeler with a spray rig on it, a tractor with a five foot disc on it, there's whatever you're comfortable against burning. It could be you want a ten foot Doja blade on there. Whatever you're comfortable with burning then just make sure you get to that mineral dirt or road or you have a, a way to put in a wet line, to, which is water a water source to put the fire out to stop it from crossing your line. You want to make sure that you have everything you need there to burn. Um, isn't just, there a uh, four fire break sizes? Isn't there some kind of like ratio there between fuel height and width of fire lanes? Am I thinking – is there a recommended number there or – there is a recommended fire lane width, right? Yeah, the normal fire lane width, I think, is anywhere from 8 to 10 foot. 8 to 10 foot. It's what you okay. kind of want. But, but I'm not sure burning, about. Yeah, if you're burning a, let's say you're burning your ag field off or your hay field, well, that fire is going to go fast. It's going to go quick. You might could just disc one lane around it with your five-foot disc and do a proper firing techniques with a backing fire mm-hmm. to control that. But if you're going to be burning in a, in a stand where you're going to be throwing a you know, higher wind day, then you might want to do a bigger fire lane. It's really what you're calling. Are you talking about the thousand hour fuels? Maybe so. Maybe or the. Tell me, Kevin. What are all? Yeah, are well, there's the different other? fuel types. There's one fuel hour. Type. There's ten hour. There's hundred hour, and that just depends on the size of the fuel. Okay. Uh, your grass is going to be your one. It's going. It's, it's how much moisture can dry out. Pretty much. Your grass is going to be your one hours. Your yopines might be your ten hours, and your hundred hours, of course, are going to be your big logs that fell down and that kind of stuff. Okay, it's all about moisture content on your. So, but mainly that's it. Make sure you got a fire lane in, or, or a way to stop the fire. Make sure you have everything in plan. Um, you don't want to just go out and burn with no fire lanes and say, "Well, I hope it. I hope this grass patch stops." You want to have some water, a water source there. Be ready to watch that fire from start to finish, or have a prescribed burn manager. Be able to watch it from start to finish because, you know, if you go out and you light the fire and it's doing good and you go have lunch at your house 10 miles away, you don't know what that fire is going to be doing. So just make sure you watch that fire 100% of the time. And then, um, you know, know when to call for help. That's the big thing. If it does jump your line, that's not a time to be scared, not want to call for help. That's let's, let's get in route, get people coming up by calling your – Burn permit, you have the number, one eight three three mfc fire Let them know that that fire had jumped the line. It is out of control. Also, call your local 911 when that does happen because, you know, it could be a situation where your rural fire department can bring a brush truck out there, get it out, get it under control quicker than we can get there because they could be in the area. So we want to make sure that, you know, you know when to call for help because we don't want anybody to, you know, do the right thing, have their fire lanes in, doing a good burn. Amber spots over jumped their line, takes off, and then now they're responsible for 100 acres of somebody else's trees. Right. So just try to get us, you know, know when to call for help. When it gets over your head that you're not comfortable with it, call for help. Okay. And it might take a little bit of time for us to get there, you know, so don't wait until it's in somebody's backyard, <laughs> backyard, you know. So definitely the sooner the better if you see that it's beyond your control. 
Yeah, and on that comment, you'll figure out why it might take them a minute or two to get there whenever we go over these fire numbers in a little while. So. Right. That was another – when we get to that, that, that was – it's not something you hear that much about. Like, it doesn't – y'all quietly don't make uh, the major news about on how much it actually is. So that's something I, I do want to hit on here yeah, in a minute. What, um, well, I would say what we just talked about with the fire lanes and all that, that's kind of in your plan. we got, we got to have that as part yeah. of the burn plan. That's part of the preparation work. Um. And then I guess the last step of those four we were talking about on the uh, – like having to prove negligence, last step was the reasoning that was behind it. So that's where where it goes into your whole um, pine understory. Silvicultural burns, agricultural burns. burns, um, Site prep burns. Site prep, conservation improvement, or wildlife habitat improvement or something. I mean, grass, I mean, you know, a lot of people burn off their deer food plots. Well, that's for a reason. There, I forget what you would label that as, but definitely, I mean, there's there, there's a lot of reasons to burn, and it's, it's the good tool that you can use. Perfect. Um, on the final evaluation, that was something I had kind of a question about. So I know, like, this is kind of maybe moving forward a little bit, but you get it burned, uh, you get everything mopped up, everything's good. You come back a little while later. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're doing your like, I guess, final evaluation, I know something we talked about was like bowl damage and stuff like that is that something that's more prone i guess after trees are or weakened maybe it, through it, some it's fire just or? going back and you checking to make sure that everything you know if you do got significant crown scorch or you really did call bowl damage or something you know you got the fire a little too hot in the middle that's something you want to put in your final evaluation because you you need to know about that that's something whenever you call your forest and say hey man i burned this on three months ago and i'm i'm noticing some Crown scorch and it's it's not greening up. Yeah. It's it's well into the spring. This should be greening up. Can you come look at and then he's gonna look at your burn plan and he'll say, Yeah, I see where you have that. Yeah. So it's it's just an evaluation for you really to make sure that you went back and checked it. Plus it's a way to check your fire lanes again. Make sure that your fire hasn't jumped without you knowing it, because you know, sometimes the hundred hour fuel later, we, yeah. You know, the hundred hour fuels we talk about could be burning interior for two, three, four days a week. It's a way to go back and check your fire too to make sure that you didn't have something escape that you didn't want to. Right. Because that's what, I mean, really what we're talking about here is burning within these parameters to achieve a specific goal. Yeah. So you may not, it may not burn hot enough to achieve your goal. It may have burned too hot to get past what your goal was. So there, there's several things you're looking at. You're trying to really hit within a controlled environment there. Yeah. Cause I mean, all fires ain't created equal. If you have a, if you want to, let's say if you're killing grass or if you're trying to, Burn grassy area is going to be completely different if you're trying to kill yopon or if you're trying to do a um, nice, clean silviculture burn or if you're trying to really damage your hardwood population for your pine stand. It, it depends on what you're wanting. Like I said, not all fires created equal. So that's trying to make sure that you know what you're going to plan with this plan before you start. You have a prescription for that forced fire prescription. Well, that it's hard to go. I think that was a good high level burn plan description without really getting yeah. in the weeds. And because like for somebody that if you're this is the first time you're hearing this maybe, it gives you a good top level uh viewpoint of it without just getting really in the weeds on on yeah. what some of these different things are or uh really talking about weather parameters and that kind of thing. I mean And that's and that's the thing, your listeners, what's gonna happen is they're gonna be hearing this and they're like, oh it, this sounds like a big, elaborate 20, 30 page thing. And it's really it, it about as simple as it can get. And they'll learn that during the prescribed burn short course. It's 
it's just something to make sure that you have. A, it's, it's really a simple plan mm-hmm. to get that burn done, and it, it really does help you out and know that a range that you need to burn in. So it's not, you know, I don't want your listeners to think this is some elaborate, you know, big thing. It's really not. It's really a simple document just to fill out. Mm-hmm. I mean, like like you said, it, it's got just a couple, like, weather parameters that you're going to look at. It's got a couple uh, desirable effects that you're going to mark as to what you're trying to do. You're just going to document what kind of what kind of fuel, like what what you are burning, what it consists of, how much it is, and I mean that that's really all the parameters you got going into it. So, uh, no, nah, they don't take four or five minutes once you get used to to doing it to kind of put them together. Uh, we were talking about a smoke cone earlier about like once you get that burn permit, and we're talking about sensitive and critical areas. Uh, really cool tool on y'all's website there under the smoke management tools for that. Uh, um smoke comb you can adjust you can go drop a pin on what property you're you're looking at doing you can uh put what type of uh fuels you're burning what type of fire you're using where it's a head fire or back and fire and uh it'll show you that you know that smoke cone what's in the sensitive area critical area you can print the map out i mean it's it's really user user friendly Technology's come a long way, hasn't it? Yeah, so I, I didn't read a few parameters, and it shows you what your smoke's going to do. It's that smoke screening that we have. It's it's going to be. Yeah, I didn't realize uh, that that was on there the other day. I forgot about that, and so I had like a. That's uh, new that that they come up with. That it's it's that's it's called simple smoke screening tool, and it's you just type in a few parameters, and it tells you what your smoke's going to be doing on that parameter day. So you can, while you're writing your burn plan, you could just sit there and play with it. Okay, I'm going to burn on a. Four mile an hour wind, north wind, and your smoke's going to do that. Okay, I can bump it up to a four, and I'm still within my critical and sensitive. Mm-hmm. And it does have critical and sensitive on there, so that's the big thing is you got to make sure that it's – you type in the proper parameters, it's going to give you your smoke. Right. And it's something you don't have to sit there with the map. and. I had it pulled right up. Technology now. <laughs> I had it pulled up the other day with, uh, like, the – Oh, what do they call those? Like uh, laminate overlays. Your teacher would like like your teacher would use on a projector. I had uh, I was measuring the scale on it, and I had it measured on my computer, and I was holding that thing up on my computer screen. Little did I know all I had to do is come here. They taught us that though when I took the class. No, yeah, that's how Alan taught. Yeah, Yeah, they they taught us that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's nice. That's what I had was the overlay. So. uh, well, that's the good yeah. thing. Technology is a great thing, but if you type in, you always want to double check it with the the simple cone method, because if you do type in a wrong parameter, you do get your parameters wrong on simple screen. It, it might throw you off a little bit. So it's just easy just to check it with that real quick, just to make sure that you got all your data right, so to speak. Right. But that that is a very useful tool that they use now for prescribed burning. It's a simple smoke screening tool. It's on our website. Uh, you type in the latitude, longitude, the acreage, the fuels, um, the ignition method, which is your backing, spotting, flanking, head fire, that kind of thing, and your wind direction, and it's going to pull you up a, a cone, so to speak, to where your sensitive and critical areas are. So, anyway, yeah, while, while he was talking about that, I was I was playing with it on the map, just kind of putting it up where we could look at it. But, yeah, every, every wind direction to north, 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 North northeast, northeast, east northeast. I mean, like it, it goes through every every possibility of a wind direction, uh, all the way around the compass points. So, um, anything else like that that kind of exists out there to help? Um, I mean, obviously there. Uh, I think there's links over to some of the fire weather um, fire weather um, forecasts that you can go look at through there. 
trying to think of anything else that would really uh, be beneficial for yeah, that. And uh, on our on our website right there, if you go to burning info, you I mean, there's burn bands on there. We have our our fire weather that smoke management tool. A link to the prescribed burn short course. It's all right there on our website. Um, right at the very top header under burning info. So burn bands. What what are who's making that call? That, that's you guys. I'm assuming that's making. The County Board of Supervisors okay. normally request a burn ban. Okay. Uh, and the Mississippi Forest Commission approves the request. Okay. And that's that's what a whole burn ban is about. Um, any person knowingly or will, willfully violating a burn ban is guilty of a misdemeanor charge. And that's an open flame. Like, And the reason for a burn ban is really it's because the, the fires are just getting too out of control, too big. They're taking away your municipalities, your rural fire departments, where they're busy fighting wildfire, helping with wildfire, doing that. So that the burn ban is, is a way to try to lower the active fires in the area. I mean, burn ban. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's starting from a supervisor level, mm-hmm. then coming over to you guys to, to approve yeah. it. Yeah. That, uh, Governor Tate Reeves will issue a statewide burn ban. If it just gets, I mean, if we have to, I mean, or if he has to, he'll do that. But that's the only way it comes from a – the state level, the other is from the county or the EMS area, the okay. board of and, supervisors level. And those may be weather related or they may be resource related. Resource, if it, yeah, yeah. I was like most of the time it's resource. And weather. I mean, yeah, it's, I was like, it, it, it can kind of be either way. So if somebody's wondering, like, man, why, why don't we have a burn ban? It's raining the last two days or something. It could be resource oriented, not just weather oriented. Yeah. And it, again, it could be, um, you know, you had your tornado that come through mm-hmm. a few a few years back, and I noticed that they put out burn bands during that tornado. One is for smoke dispersion. If you have a bunch of smoke in the air from people burning all the down debris, right? You know the planes might not could survey that area good. And also, you got to look at it. That's EMS people who are trying to help. Gotcha. Listen. Yep. So it, 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 the burn bands are not just literally about wildfire and the burning. It, there's a big picture that you have to think about because people do you know get mad that. A burn ban goes to yeah. their county, and they had a burn set the next week. Well, it could be somebody who's having a medical or that, them resource or somewhere else that might could help them. So right. That, that's the main reason for burn ban. Okay. Well, uh, what are what are some? I guess before we get into like fire getting out, what's what's safe for what's safe fire in Mississippi? And when we talked about how to do it, I mean, like what what do you have that's? How do y'all recommend going to guy like some of those safe fire practices? Because let's say it's not. You're burning forty acres. Maybe it's somebody burning leaf litter in their backyard, or somebody like what? What is safe fire for Mississippi? Safe fire for Mississippi is if you do are doing any outdoor burning and you're not under a burn ban. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. And you want to burn your leaves in the backyard. A hundred percent monitor it the whole time. Even if it's you're burning a little bitty campfire, monitor it the whole time. One ember can start a fire. All it takes is one spark. So if that ember floats over a hundred yards, it's going to start a wildfire. So you want to watch it. You want to make sure you're not doing that in any extreme windy days. If you're 12, 13, 14 minor wind, you might not want to burn your leaves in your backyard. So just make sure you do that. And just if it's a, a burn barrel that you can cover it, you, know, you can get a screen and cover it, and that'll help some of your embers escape. So I hope I answered your question with yeah. them. But it, it, you know, they are safer ways to do things. And if you, you know, our number one cause of fires in, in Mississippi is debris burning. Well, that's, that's what I, I, I thought I saw that. That's kind of, I guess, where I was going to use that as a lead-in point into the next part was that uh, escape debris was the number one cause, right? That's that's the number one known cause of fire in Mississippi is debris burning. And it could be, 
you know, somebody burning a trash pile in their backyard or somebody burning a leaf pile or campfires, that debris pile burning is the number one cause. Well, and I guess that's – go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, that was what I was going to ask when I saw that, was like escape debris. We're not uh, – you're not ta- – when you're talking about escape debris, is that really more so going to be home-related burn, bar- uh, burn barrel, leaf pile burning, or is that – Actual silviculture burns with embers flying. Over. I mean, most of okay, I said mo- most of it is more home work. I was wanting to use that kind of, I guess, as a as a point toward the prescriber burning the prescribed courses. Like when these people are doing it and they're doing it correctly, that's not typically where these major outbreaks are coming from, right? No, no, ninety. I'm, I'm not going to give a percentage, yeah. but a, a lot of our people in Mississippi or a lot of people in Mississippi when they are doing prescribed burning. They're, they all they want to do is go out there, burn off their property in a safe, responsible manner. If it, you know, it's gonna, it could potentially get out. They are mm-hmm. doing something that could potentially get out, but they're gonna call for help. They're gonna do that. A lot of the accidental fires that we have with the debris burning is, you know, somebody burning a trash pile in the backyard, somebody burning leaves on a windy day. Yeah, somebody raked all the leaves down the ditch by the road and lit it up. And, then walked yeah. in and made a sandwich. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, nine out of ten, wild, picked up. Nine out of ten wildfires in the state of Mississippi is human-caused errors. A lot of people think that it's natural causes, that it's um, lightning strikes or everything. It's, it's nine out of ten is uh, human errors. So if well, we go – Maybe me being ignorant, but I wouldn't think we'd have a lot of dry strikes – I mean, I would, there, I would, I would some, think there's some. If you look at um, our website, we do have some, some some lightning strikes, but it's not like if you go out to Texas, right? There's thousands in one lightning storm, or it's not going to be that that bad because we do have a lot of moisture. Everybody knows when a thunderstorm comes through, it's going to be raining. It's raining, but, but we, do, can, we do have potential for that. Fireworks are when it's dry and we're going through a drought. You know, shooting fireworks on say July Fourth, if it was a dry dry time, that. That's created a lot of fires. Yeah, I mean, I've seen everything on the wildfire side. I know we're switching gears from prescribed burning to wildfire now, but I've seen uh, chain dragging down the ground on the ground where somebody mm-hmm. hooks up a trailer and they don't hook the chain up or it accidentally comes off. That's starting fires all the way Sparking down the road. Right. I've seen, um, hook, you know, tires blow out. That starts fires. I was in Texas um, fighting fire this year, and I seen where somebody threw a bottle out on the side of the road. Ain't no telling how long it's been out there, but you've seen the magnifying glass with the yeah, bed yeah, yeah. sun. That started a fire in Texas. I mean, there's I know we're getting away from Mississippi and going going into that, but it definitely multiple ways to start fires. All it takes is one spark. Power lines. Yep. Limb falling on the power line. Yep, that's a well, no, I've kept y'all pretty pretty uh tight to your 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 core everyday stuff. And I mean, uh people are more than happy to hear stories like that. Yep. I'm happy to hear stories like that, whether they are or not. Well, I mean, and you, you talk about the fire numbers and everybody, you know, everybody wants to hear about the fire numbers. Well, last fiscal year we had one thousand over 1,400 fires in the state that burned over 40,000 acres. So that's our numbers from last year, over 40,000 acres of wildfires in the state. Now, granted, it's not like you see in, in California 100 million, 200 million acre fire or a million acre fires because if you look at an aerial map of Mississippi, there's there's roads or pig trails or somebody's hunting trail somewhere around there. We use that stuff to cut the fire off. Right. So hopefully I never see a fire. The biggest one I've seen in the state of Mississippi is around 2,900 acres that I've personally been on a bulldozer actually fighting a fire. So, you know, hopefully we never see a five or 6,000 acre right. fire. But uh, it, there are potential here for bigger fires. But, again, so 40,000 acres last year. Put that in perspective, though, like 
I think when we started talking about this, when we originally started this, y'all try to burn about 30,000 acres a year, don't you? So it's that, like talking about fighting 10,000 acres more than what you were actually trying to manage yep. burn. Yeah, so, and you got to think, if we're putting out 1,400 fires a year, or over 1,400 fires a year, you know, we, we don't get to do some of the burning that, that we want to get done because we're do. out fighting fire. I right. Mean. So that's what, you know, Meacham said, sometimes it might take them a minute to get there. Well, if they coming off another fire that's, again, these employees are covering anywhere from two to four counties where if they're on one side of the county and they just got done fighting a fire, even if they're in the truck driving, it's going to take them a second to get to you. Right. Uh, and since January, just to let you know uh, some numbers there, and since January 1 to March 1, we've had over 260 fires that burned over 7,000 acres already just, just this year. Yeah, and you know that number is going to continue to grow. Yeah, although we're not even through the I first mean, quarter yet. Yep. And we're, I mean, we're really getting into our fire season. Now, our fire season normally runs, again, from October to the end of April. So so that's wow. the, that's, that's our fire season there. And we're just now starting to, we're hitting the, the March. I'll say March is now designated as yep. um, Wildfire, Wildfire Prevention, Prevention Month. Month. Yeah, Governor Tate Reeves progran- uh, proclaimed March to be Wildfire Prevention Month. Uh, it just highlights the responsibilities of Mississippians to help protect their forest, uh, homes, and ultimately their lives by focusing on preventing wildfires. Because like we said, again, nine out of ten wildfires are human-caused errors, so mm-hmm. we got to watch out for that and just try to prevent them. And if the number one cause is coming from, like, kind of that homeowner-related deal, well, it, there's a good chance it's either buy your home or buy your neighbor's home. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. definitely got some uh, – some real effect there that could have on somebody. Yeah, and and that's the thing. When you're talking, talking about the uh, – everybody wants to live in the rural area. Everybody wants to live and see the nice pine trees and everything. And and, and great. Look at our FireWise program. Make sure that you are being FireWise because that big wildfire could potentially come to your back door uh, if you're living next to some timber company land or if you're living in DeSoto National Forest. So that's why we want to protect people's homes. Right. And this fire um, March prevention – um, wildfire Prevention Month is the reason why we want to highlight that because it is the higher historically March has the highest number of wildfires. Um, it's just due to the transition from winter to spring, mm-hmm. drier vegetation, lower humidity, higher wind. Your your wildfire is just you have a more potential for wildfire during the month of March is why it's in March. That's People it. are getting out, raking up their leaves, wanting to burn oh, their leaves. Get, getting ready <laughs> for up the yards. Spring <laughs> Get their gardens up, ready. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's the big thing is we just want to you just want to keep in the forefront of everybody's mind to stay safe, not to burn on them windy days. Yep. Okay. Uh what so I don't know if we discussed we I guess maybe we hinted on it a little bit, but we talked about like that coastal breeze coming in. I know South Mississippi has a lot of wildfire or seems like they have some fire get out for that particular reason. Um, are there areas of the state that's worse than others when it comes to fire, wildfires, or is it kind of spread out across with the homeowner calls? Everywhere in the state can and will burn. I mean, right. unless you're yeah. in, a, in a bottom drain. I have been on coastal fires in hip-deep water. And burning over the top fire of it. Burn across <laughs> top of the grass. So everywhere in Mississippi can and will burn. Now, predominantly, most of our wildfires are – a higher occurrence of wildfires is in the six coastal counties. Last year, though, uh, Amit County uh, got hit pretty hard with wildfires. That that southwestern area got hit. 
but it can be statewide. I mean, there's there's no nothing to say that the Delta can't burn if the yeah you know it, it's it's could be statewide. So there's not an area that we're focused on more, more or less. It's, it's more or less statewide. But your okay. predominant the southern counties have predominantly more fire, but that's not to say it can't happen statewide and could happen all over the state. Really, I mean, it all depends on where the drought hits because you've seen them big band of rain. Yeah, that we just got. Well, it was pretty much a statewide rain that come across. Everybody got at least one to three inches. Well, that don't happen all the time. You know, it could rain up in North Mississippi and really take them out of that drought condition to where in South Mississippi they don't get anything. Reverse that th- same thing. That might get really wet in South Mississippi and no rain in North Mississippi where they're going to have more high fire currents. Okay. So everything we do is weather dependent. So. Well, what else y'all got about that? Anything y'all want to cover there? As far as the wildfires, you know, the way we fight wildfires with the bulldozers. And that's just, and we're getting out ahead of it. We're laying down Yep. Once the wildfire and, happens, we get the call. If you do notice a wildfire, something I do want to stay is I want you to stay safe. If our public notices the wildfire, just stay safe. Get away from the fire. Call your local 911 and one eight three three mfc fire And the reason why you want to call both of them is because your rural fire department can get there closer, but you're also notice, notifying our dispatch that there is a wildfire so they can coordinate together and get resources in to help you out as fast as you can. And if you see any suspicious activity, you know, we have a lot of arson activity. Incendiary is our number two cause of okay. wildfires in Mississippi, and that's basically arson yep. um, set fires. So if you see something that doesn't look right or somebody doing something and you see a fire over there, you know, report it. Couldn't hurt. Okay. So you've seen a wildfire. You've called your 911 dispatcher, 1833 MFC fire. You're safe. You're out of the way. Well, now we're coming to fight the fire. Well, you know, and you learned this during your prescribed burn short course, there's a fire triangle. You have heat, oxygen, and fuel. Well, we use a bulldozer or hand tools to put that fire out. We go around the fire, getting it down to mineral dirt, and then we use a backing fire, which is a controlled setting fire around our fire lane to back the fire into each other, and that takes away all the available fuel. The reason why we do that is a lot of times we don't have water sources way out in the woods. If it's, a, like I said, a 2,000-acre fire, it's going to be hard to get water all the way around that to completely extinguish that fire. So you want to make sure you put that mineral dirt up next to it, and that's going to stop you. And you're going around writing a backfire off of it to make a bigger black line off of your off your fire lane just to give you some more protection there that's that's mainly about firefighter safety um stopping the head fires what we call it which is the fire that is wind driven um we don't want it to jump our line or so we light that backing fire to get it away from our firefighters make sure that we give them some protection and plus we're taking that safety zone with us as we're fighting the fire so that's the big thing but it's just called a backing fire and what it is is it's just controlled setting fire around the big bad fire, so to speak, and it's fighting fire with fire. It's just taking that fuel away from the fire to where it can't continue to grow. You're just – it's got to have all three of those things in that triangle, and you're just trying to remove one of them. Yep. And with water, water works great. Uh, you see a lot of you – know, water is the fastest way to put out a fire. It works great. But when you have a 20% humidity day with 15-mile-an-hour winds, it's really hard to put a 10-acre fire completely out with water. Yeah. So, and it weighs about – Eight pounds a gallon, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, can't tote a whole lot of it on your back. Yeah, and and you look at your western fires that they do out in, you know, Texas, California, 
they're still going to put a hand mineral dirt line in front of that black area, even once they spray it out. Yep. And that's just going to be a control for the fire. You want to, you still want a hard line or mineral dirt all the way around that fire. Now, y'all, do y'all both have some experience with that? And I think you and I talked about it a little bit, Mitch. I mean, Kevin has a lot more than I do, but okay. I have been out to on a fire detail out west um, on the fire line, fire, hand crew, just one time. <laughs> but not I not that y'all don't do enough of it here, I guess. But, but we are you, all trained wildland firefighters, okay. and so that's kind of a mandatory thing for if you are going to work in the, the commission, forestry you're, commission you're going to get through that correct and but you can you know continue that as high as you want to on how involved you are or not like you gotcha. don't have to go out west yeah, gotcha. we're, we're yeah. federally trained okay wbcg to fight wildfire i keep up my firefighting standards okay and training each year and something me and meacham does right now is we fly drones on fires we're guiding to the whole drones on uh, the states getting heavier into them we do have three planes one's uh our pilot and the other two are contracted. So we do have some planes, and it's just for aerial footage. It helps with our southern pine beetle infestations, and they search the state for that. But they also help out on our wildfires. Well, the drones, we're getting big into them, and that's what me and Meacham mainly do on wildfires now is we fly drones on a fire. Well, if you're in a bulldozer and you're putting that fire out and somebody can have eyes right above you, it just it's a comfort level. It helps you out. Right. I can find smoke that – would might take somebody a few hours of driving around to find it. It's it, it's a useful tool that we've started utilizing more, and that's what we mainly do now in our wildfire situations. Cool. We do that, but um, yes, we are both uh, still fire line qualified, and we go out west. And I haven't been out west a western hand tool yet. What I have done is um, operated dozers in Texas. Gotcha. So, so I, I did that this year. I was on a thirty thousand acre fire in Texas, and now we go out both of us as public information officers. Okay. And that's what I do when I go out on a fire detail or hurricane detail or whatever well, say, natural it, disaster it is. I was going to ask if it worked kind of like that. Like I know whenever they, uh, whenever we have a hurricane come through and, and people from all different departments are coming from all different states, is that kind of what happens when yes. when people are fighting one of these big fires? Is they're just putting out a call saying, hey, we need some extra resources if you got anybody that can come? That's right. So you uh, are basically on a staging list, okay. I guess you'd call it. Kevin, kind of, Kevin can explain that available. maybe. Once you, <laughs> once you are qualified to go, um, you talk to, as far as with us, with the Mississippi Forest Commission, you talk to your bosses and make sure that it's okay to go, and then you go available, which puts you on a availability list. Yeah. Uh, and you can be nationally available or you can be locally available, uh, whichever one that you want to go to. Locally available means they got a name request you are. It's got to be a uh, local entity that gets you, but if you're nationally available, then there is a database to where they can pull off of it, and you can end up in Idaho, California, Colorado, Alaska, yeah. um, anywhere that they need that resource, depending on what you're qualified as. Gotcha. And we also have teams, and there's three southern teams. You have the gray team, which I'm on, um, the red team, the blue team, there's four, and the gold team. And, and I, that's basically southern-type Southern teams that are different types, um, depending on the wildfire size or the hurricane size, just mm-hmm. how big of an incident right. it is. Okay. And they can, um, if you're on one of those teams, then you go out with that team if you are available to go out. So everybody has a job and a position. 
I'm guessing that gives you some people that you're familiar with working it with. Does. It kind of helps it that does. team environment. Rather yeah, than another, going somewhere and not knowing anybody, right. which uh, I've done that. <laughs> another team that's good to mention, we do have our incident management team here that um, helps out or does like the water crisis in Jackson. They mm-hmm. helped out with that. So we do have an incident management team that helps out with stuff in our state that helps out. And that's really when we do the hurricanes. So our incident management team for Mississippi is our Forestry Commission employees. And when there's a hurricane, we um, stage at Camp Shelby, and we're responsible for trucks coming in, bringing tarps, food, water, whatever it is, and then pushing it out to different um, spots for the public to come get. You know, so that, that we do play a big part in Mississippi's any type of incident that happens, we go to work. And the big thing about the the Western details is it it, it does it helps our employees out financially. They get paid mm-hmm. a little, you know federal on some if they go out single resource or if they go out as a twenty one man hand crew or if they go out as a dozer operator. Well, when we were sending those dozers out or those bulldozers out to Texas, our units they was on. Uh, you know, making money for the state. When we send a piece of equipment out, with well, that piece of equipment, we just don't send it out for free. Right. I mean, it's making money for the state, helping out our taxpayers. So that's one thing that we do um, that really does help out. And it's not just, it's the experience. I mean, I told you, I've been here 11 years, fought fire for a lot of those years, and I've been on a 2,900-acre fire in Mississippi, but went to Texas and went on a 30,000-acre fire. So that it's just a great experience that you get. You learn big picture, big scale, big big experience. Right, that really does help out. Well, that I mean, it's like I say all the time. Like the more experience you, even if it's not the same exact terrain, like you're still seeing something you're familiar with behave in different ways than what you've used to been seeing, and how to use those same principles to apply it when you get back here. Right. Um, you can take information from other people that are doing other things and apply it back to whatever you're doing. So it's it's all about what we can bring home, yep. and and what we can bring home to help our state, help our taxpayers out. Um, I've been to classes in Florida, and I have met some great people from Florida. Meacham has been to fires in California, where she's met some people in California that's helped out. When you go out there, it's kind of like a, a powwow, and you talk, you do war stories, and what we would do it this way, we would do it that way. Tennessee, I can name off a bunch of states. Oklahoma, I've met a lot of these people on going on these details, and it's all about what we can come and bring home and to help our employees here in Mississippi or help our citizens in Mississippi. You know, if I'm on a wildfire and it's fishing to, it's running or the head fire is running at somebody's house, well, if I learn from a guy in Oklahoma, hey, if you go this way, you know, that might help out. Right. It's all about knowledge and experience that we can bring back to our state. That is that, that that's a neat aspect of that I learned out of that class. That I was like, this has got to be something we talk about. I won't say it's a cool aspect of it because it's, it's usually happening in a bad scenario or bad reason and why why it's going on. Y'all are having to out there and do it, but it's it's just interesting to learn about. Like I said, y'all kind of like the uh, the silent public service that's out there that, that you don't get to hear a whole lot about especially like with the wildfire side and all and y'all out there fighting and putting them out that kind of deal like uh to me that was one of the things that stood out from that class i was like oh, this is something i'd love to talk to them about just because it's you don't hear that much about it yeah, and, and the big thing it's not the wild wild west but we're just out there putting bulldozers through woods and, <laughs> i mean it, it, we're trained to do this we're, right we are very knowledgeable we we take it very serious when we put a dozer on somebody's property that 
you know, we're not just going through that. We do have a job to do. We have to put that fire out before it does burn down somebody's house or somebody's subdivision or somebody's retirement fund with their trees if right. the fire's bad enough. So we got to keep that in the back of our mind. But we're actually we're trained to do this. We're doing it in a controlled manner. We're doing the best job we can with our training. And a lot of people say, you know, the fires, they are some scary situations where we got to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can't go running in a fire without having some knowledge of the fire. We want to make sure that we survey what the fire is doing. We want to make sure that we do that. We're not just going to run up in there and put ourselves in any kind of riskful danger. I've had somebody just say, oh, just go this way. Um, <laughs> let's not do that. Let's look at what, we're, what we got first. Oh, as far, I guess somebody's listening, I know not kind of jumping back behind the uh, uh, the wildfire stuff, but, I mean, uh, somebody's listening from another state. A lot of stuff we've covered, they're going to have pretty similar type resources available pretty much in whatever state. Like, if you're in Alabama, you're, you're going to have some similar resources, maybe laid out a little bit different, yeah, but you're going to have some. It's all going to be a little bit different, and I'm not too familiar. Yeah, I'm, and I'm you really don't get on too much with other states, but I know Florida has the um, – the, the Florida Forest Service, uh, Alabama, I think, has the Alabama Forestry Commission. I think that they go up under commission uh-huh. name. Tennessee has their Tennessee Forestry. So, I mean, every state's going to have some kind some, of – You can look around you know. and you're going to have some something out there to, to have some resources available. Yeah, and then you got like your western states that have a lot more U.S. Forest Service yeah. uh, employees because they have more, more um, federal, federal land. lands. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. Well, what else uh, – what else y'all got? Do you have anything y'all want to cover that we missed? I know I feel like we hit a lot there. It was yeah. really informational. The, the big thing is just make sure you look us up online. We went over our website stuff over and over and over, and we've hit on it, hit on it. But it's on uh, the website is mfc.ms.gov, and you can literally search whatever you want. Just look around, browse around. That's a really good tool to use. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram because we do post active wildfires. We post fires from the past. We you know, we have a throwback on Thursday to where she, you know, we'll, we'll post old pictures of people back in the 80s and 70s, and so it's good pictures. Burn bands are yep. posted up to um, date. And on uh, the last, last website is preventwildfiresms.com, so just make sure you, uh, your listeners go and browse, browse around and look around I, and, learn, and learn more. And I'll say check out that Mississippi Invasive Species app. And check out the uh, Mississippi Trees app. That, that's a couple of apps you put on your smartphone that are both really, really neat apps that you can take a look at. Yep, just type Mississippi Trees app, and it'll pop up on your phone, Android, iPhone. And I will, uh, I will try to get Bo to tag all since he's not since he skipped out on us and didn't want to sit here and talk to us, uh, being out of state. Uh, whenever he gets ready to upload all this, I try to get him to tag all this in our uh, in our social media. So. Um, if you're used to seeing us already uh, through Spotify, iTunes, whichever, uh, wherever you're getting your podcast from, or through uh, social media, Instagram at uh, the White Oak Collective, um, we'll try to tag some of that information out there too. Well, I'm give y'all one last shot. Anything else round table y'all got? Or uh, only thing I got is just remember, only you can prevent forest fires. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>